What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Nate Night Talks podcast. This is episode two. Once again, thank you so much to everybody who's been supporting this on Clubhouse. Uh, without all of you, this would not be here. And so uh, I'm incredibly grateful for all of your support and uh, looking forward to many, many more incredible interviews like the one that we are having today with my friend, uh, Jay Nelson, who I haven't seen for a very, very long time and, uh, and found out after uh, recently connecting that this whole time he's been writing a book, a book on consciousness. And uh, wow, I mean, that fits in with everything that we talk about in Nate Night Talks. So I had to have him in for a number of reasons, not just to catch up and say hello, but to uh, hear about all of his research and everything that he has discovered. He is also a fellow psychonaut, so we will have many great uh, stories and conversations to uh, dive into as it pertains to altered states of consciousness. So I am incredibly excited for today and to have uh, Jay here with me. And so uh, without further ado, I'm Nate. It's late. Let's talk. Jay, let me bring you on in. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. How's it going? It's good to see you, man. It's going great. It's good to see you, too. It has been since, I was thinking about it last night, 2017. Time, man. Time flies so unbelievably fast. And it's kind of crazy. You remember where where we were? Film festival, right? Yeah, the Holly Shorts at Grauman's Chinese Theater. So that was the last time. And that was like my sayonara to the acting business was like that moment, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so uh, I guess a little backstory for everybody. Uh, Jay and I met um, in, a, uh, <laughs> in, a, in an acting class that uh, I'm not going to give the name of the teacher or, or any other details. But uh, needless to say, it's, it's riddled with... Uh, suspect things and uh and most people who left it were all kind of cringed about things that took place and and second guessing what what was actually transpiring for those years that we were there but uh jay and i connected uh, in that class and um and hit it Magic off mike oh god <laughs> Man, yeah, uh, Magic Mike shows that never happened, but were good excuses to to get men to take their clothes off and dance. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. We're revealing it all on this episode, guys. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll breeze over that. Um, but uh, <laughs> a, a very a very uh, interesting, you know, origin story of our friendship, and um, and I think Jay, you left before I did, because I ended up being um, like an assistant teacher in that class, because uh, ultimately I wanted to leave. And he was like, no, 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 stay. You you don't have to pay. And uh, and just, you know, help out in the class. And I'm like, all right, yeah, whatever. And, uh, and, yeah. and then I think we touched base then like a year or so after you left and you were making the, the short film uh, method, correct? Yeah, short film, pilot, whatever you want to call it. Was it actually originally a pilot? Yeah, I mean, so um, my agent, we did try to pitch it. It was, I mean, basically we tried to do the uh, Whiplash thing before Whiplash had become a thing where they made the short film and then they got the funding to make the feature. So I took the first basically 20 minutes of the feature film that I had, that was mostly written. And then that's what we made. And then, you know, the idea was like, why not just make this a television series, which is, we tried to do it. But um, by that time, you know, and this is right around the time that you and I saw each other last 2017, my, I had fallen out of love and with acting and I'd fallen in love with consciousness and, and psychology and, and just 
explaining how your brain creates this synthesis of sensory information you're having right now. And um, I mean, I've been in a rabbit hole of research ever since. So didn't yeah. uh, didn't uh, Sling Blade? I feel like that was the first one that ever did that, right? Uh, the movie with Billy Bob Thornton. He did that as a short, and that got turned into a, a feature well before Whiplash. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. It's a little form, a little movie trivia for all of you who give a damn. Um, but I, I, I feel like that was uh, one of the first um, that actually did it, and then yeah, Whiplash and. Uh, and, and and method, you know, uh, if if perhaps you you didn't fall out of love with uh <laughs> with, with the acting, which I I understand, uh, it can be very disenchanting for anybody who's um, who's been in this business. <sighs> Good lord, I mean the it's something like I remember hearing some statistic like thirty five thousand people moved to L A every year to be an actor, and like thirty five thousand leave, or I mean every month, sorry, every month thirty five thousand come here to be an actor, and thirty five thousand leave. Yeah. Um, and it's just like a revolving door of, of, you know, people who are maybe big fish in small ponds and then they come out to this gigantic ocean that is just fucking brutal. And they, yeah, they get eaten alive and they're just like, or it's, I mean, they just realize, man, I, this is not what I thought it would be. And I don't want any part of this. Like that it's, you know, it's a business more than it is uh, a creative industry in many ways. Um, uh, the business part is what matters ultimately at the end of the day it's business before creativity uh, before art <laughs> because art usually doesn't mm-hmm. sell uh, but um but yeah i mean so let's uh let's go with um, well i guess first and foremost people do need to know uh, about about this, this short film that uh, that jay made um called method and uh and so that was after we hadn't seen each other for a while he reached out and was like hey uh you know i'm doing this uh this short pilot pitch um and I, you know, love you to be in it. And, uh, and this is kind of like what the scene is. And I was like, yeah, man, obviously, of course. And, uh, and we did it mm-hmm. and you, boxing. yeah, as a boxing, a boxing scene. And, uh, was it East LA or is, uh, it was down as outside of downtown it's near Skid Row. Actually, that was where it was, right? The boxing gym was near <laughs> Skid Row. Yeah. It was, um, at this really, uh, old, like boxing ring in downtown LA and, but it, but it looks awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great, yeah. great location. Yeah, yeah. you you um for those of you who are fans of uh of people like Christian Bale who uh who've done horrific things to their body in the name of the craft as far as uh, losing insane amounts of weight and gaining insane amounts of weight like he did in the machinist and and then in vice um Jay did mm-hmm. something very similar to that uh for for method where you lost like what 40 pounds Yeah so as you know, like when we probably first met, I was like 170 or something like that. You know, I like to work out, but like it wasn't like the thing. Um, and then I gained a bunch of weight and then we filmed our first scene together, which was the boxing scene. That was the first thing we'd ever shot. And it was beautiful and perfect. Yeah, you were yoked and, for that um, too. Yeah, so I was, a, I was 184 and very, very lean. And then after that day started like where it was like, okay, well now you have three months to lose 40 pounds and uh, the entire team is waiting on you. But it was great because we had such great footage from that first day. That was the motivation for me to keep going. And man, losing that much weight in that short of time, like you literally have to change everything about your life. And I know that can sound crazy, but it, it's true. Like you have to change yeah. your value structure, how you hang out with people or don't, because everything that we do surrounds around or, you know, revolves around food or going yeah. out or alcohol or it something does. like that. And I couldn't do any of that. Yeah. And I wasn't fun to be around. 
I, so I stayed indoors. And what do you do when you have nothing to do? I read. Like yeah. you find the thing that truly distracts you when you cannot eat anything. Yeah. Like not anything, but like. Yeah. yeah. Now people, so, unless, unless you've done a fast or like perhaps a cleanse, I used to do that fucking master cleanse, which is hilarious. I did it a number of times. Like I did it once for I don't know, like two weeks was the max I did it, but that's two weeks without any food, just drinking water with lemon, cayenne pepper and fucking syrup in it. And, uh, and I remember that same revelation that you just said where I suddenly realized how bored I was because of how much of your life revolves around the act of eating, preparing to eat, going yeah. out to eat, drinking, like all of this social stuff in your life that is built around just the, the process of eating or drinking. And once you eliminate that, you're like, I have way too much time on my hands. And then you're just starving on top of it. So you're even more like, <laughs> it's a, it, it's a great realization for how much, uh, how much time, which makes sense. If you go back to like hunter gatherers, right? I mean, they had to spend days, weeks, sometimes hunting to try and be able to get, you know, just a meal, like how much time was devoted just to being able to, to eat and survive. And we do it at a, such a, you know, uh, subdued level now uh but but nonetheless it's still a tremendous amount of time even to go get easily accessible food did you notice anything that happened to you like with you in regards to like the way that you smell um or like your ability to smell is what i should say uh i, I don't remember much sensory difference i do remember waking up and my sleeping habits are shit where i will normally you know i'm a night owl i can i'll be up to like five or six working i mean unless obviously i'm like i'm shooting something or whatever in the morning but if i don't have something like that is requiring me to be up in the morning i will be up all night because i'd rather work out and when i was doing these uh cleanses at a, a few different occasions i remember waking up at like 7 a.m without an alarm just being up my body just being like whoop like naturally just waking up on its own and like, and not being tired and just being like wide awake and ready to start the day. Like, you know, I think we biologically are programmed to do. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, that's interesting. I had no desire. Um, I always like, you know, chewed tobacco for a long period of time, especially back then. Um, and I remember having zero desire to chew tobacco, like to have any type of like stimulant <laughs> in my body. Like all of it just went away. Like there was no, everything just biochemically kind of shifted as like a priority of, of survival almost in a way. And, uh, and you know, I feel like my senses became more acute. I do remember despite being hungry, I did feel actually sharper in some respects, if that makes sense. It does. No. And that's exact. I mean, I, I hope that you shared that we didn't plan that. Like, yeah. I hope that you felt that same way because that's been my experience too, which is, you know, um, I did third, I did 90 days fruitarian. Uh, and that was a trip. I must say 90 days of that because what is that? Know, What's fruitarian? I based, uh, just, just basically fruit? ate fruit, no fats, no oils, no nuts. Um, the only thing I ate was fruit. And then at night I would have something like sauteed kale and that was it like sauteed kale with a little bit of tomatoes or something like that. So I wasn't eating, you know, like no legumes, no beans, no peas, it was completely fruit. And so what this is kind of called is like a scene fruitarian. You're not eating anything that is like kills the entire plant in a way. So like, you know, like a banana, you harvest the banana and the banana tree is still there, but like some things you, you have to kill the entire thing. So in this way for 90 days, I wasn't really taking any life at all. And I cannot tell you what that did to me as a psychonaut. 
and what it did to my organism because mm. it, it just like gave me a baseline of comparison. I wasn't smoking then. I wasn't, you know, on anything. I wasn't doing psychedelics or anything. So for 90 days, it was really like, this is just what it is to be a human and to not take anything. And to, I mean, I lost more weight doing that than I did doing method. Really? It's crazy, dude. Oh yeah. Like I couldn't hold on weight at all. Like, I mean, and then like doing an experience, like I had this monk that took me on at his little predecessor, so to speak. And, you know, he had me in a tent for three days, just drinking distilled water, nothing else. And I cannot tell you what just drinking distilled water for three days, not eating anything will do and putting yourself in social isolation. So you're in a tent out in the woods all by yourself for three days. That will change you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it will show you like who you really are. Like, and, and like, I mean, the thing, can I talk about identity and food real quick? Yeah, man. No, go ahead. Okay. You know, doing these cleanses, like what you did or, um, doing the 90 day fruitarian thing. Um, it really showed you who you really are because you have these ideas about yourself. Like, well, I always eat dessert at night or I always have oats in the morning or I always have, you know, some sort of grain in, in, in the afternoon. And you think that's who you are, but then you take all that away. And it's like, no, those were just parasitic behaviors that grafted itself onto your psyche and they were holding you to a certain pattern of behavior and you are actually something different than that and so when you do something like that master cleanse or the the cleanse i'm talking about like you get to know who you truly are and and what and what these foods have power over because what are you thinking about it's like as soon as i break this thing what are you gonna have you know like i wanted the worst things after method i mean after we after we cut during method I gained back 45 pounds in five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is, uh, it's funny. Cause you know, people like, uh, you know, Joe Rogan, he does his, his sober, his sober September type thing. Um, I mean, this, this goes back to all religions, ancient wisdom teachers, like fasting is such a huge part of, of culture that is lost today because we have no self-control. We're self-indulgent in every way. It's narcissism. It's about us and what we want in the moment. There is no long-term thinking or real um, intent desire to know self. Uh, it is more, you know, assimilation within the machine at this point. And it's not necessarily people's fault. That's, that's by design. That is how culture is set up. And those who control, you know, ultimately society at the very top have kind of uh, set things up. But when you do stuff like that, like you were saying, there's a there. And I think that that's, that's scary to some people is that there is no way to um, avoid yourself at that point. When, when it's <laughs> isolation, when it's uh when, it, when you're, you know, you, you've deprived yourself of every distraction, which is ultimately what food and, you know, alcohol and all, all these other things that we do. Um, they're, they're distractions to degree. Obviously, you know, eating is survival, but, um, to what extent, you know, we, we've made a social thing out of it in, in many regards. Um, it's not necessarily about uh, just feeding the body. Um, we're actually poisoning the body in many regards because of the things that we're, we're ingesting. And you sure. don't realize what that baseline is, like you were saying, until you do it. Until you like you actually fast, uh, and it's kind of similar, I think, in, in many ways with with psychedelic experiences. Um, that there, it, until you you step back and pull yourself out of this this routine this uh, this programming the diet and everything and mm-hmm. let your body go back 
to a natural state, like where, where it's meant to be. And you see the difference between you without any of those things being in a natural state compared to the daily life of the, the terrible things we ingest, how they make you feel like how they fuck with your sleep, how they, you know, impact your mood, like the effects of everything and motivate your, you know, your, your intentions and, and how you, you know, react with the world and with people mm-hmm. and you take all that away. Then suddenly it's just you, your higher self and, and that's it. And your body like adjusting to survive and, and, and finding that baseline. And there's, there's no, you're right. There's no kind of going back after you experience that. Uh, I mean, you people will go back because we, we default back to, to have, you know, we go back in culture and we reassimilate and it's, it's hard to maintain that um, because society makes it difficult to do that. But once you, you know, it's just like psychedelics. Once you see, you can't unsee. And once you have that experience, like you're talking about, where you suddenly experience that level of, of living, um, there's really no uh, going back from it. Like it's permanently a part of you and you realize, man, this is what it used to be like. <laughs> this, this is what it used to be like a long time ago. Like this is the natural state of humans. Yeah, it really is. Um, and I mean, that that kind of ties into, you know, the only thing that I think gave me an edge when writing this book is that, um, you know, like you, the, the subtitle is A Psychonautical Odyssey. And I'm glad that you know what psychonaut means, but okay. some people don't. Yeah. And um, yeah, for those who don't, it's, it's it's one who wants to explore the mind. You know, you're not exploring the world as much. We've already discovered most of the world, but you're, what about the mind? This is the the, the final frontier right here. Yeah. And there's so much left to be discovered. And um, being that I just happen to just like altered states or non-ordinary states of consciousness and changing my situation up, um, and then doing that, that fruitarian, that really gave me a baseline of what consciousness is. And then when you stretch it by subjecting yourselves to um, certain methods of achieving non-ordinary states of consciousness, I hate that word, by the way. The only reason we say that is because when people say altered states of consciousness, they automatically assume that it is, you know, drug induced or something mm-hmm. like that. So we say non-ordinary states of consciousness, but it's such a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. This is the way I have to tiptoe around, you know, the, the 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 knee-jerk reaction to words. I say the same thing when discussing, like, UFOs. Like, this, the stigma that's been put behind that word draws an immediate reaction from people, hence the whole, you know, new nomenclature of UAP. It's a very similar thing that's um, within the, the, the psychedelic space as well, is that you have to, like... <laughs> saying one word can immediately invoke so many feelings in somebody that they, they just turn off with their preconceived conditioning or notions about, about it based on that, uh, word. Yep. Yeah. The word meditation, the word vegan. I hate those words. Yeah. I, I try never to use them, but it's hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so let's, uh, first and foremost, people haven't, um, uh, you know, seen method, uh, check it out. Is there, is it like on YouTube? Um, it was a great short, man. I know you won a lot of awards and you really, you really committed, um, heavily to this. And I remember, uh, being really impressed and inspired by, you know, the work that you put in at that time to creating something on your own, which most people don't do. And in order to do anything in this industry, uh, you have to create, that's the only way you'll ever make it. Um, unless you're a part of the lucky sperm club, otherwise you have to, (laughs) you have to make your own, uh, your own content and then hope that it, you know, something happens with it. But like, if you're, if you're just relying on casting and hoping you're going to get, well, it's never going to happen. That's not how the industry is, is set up. Um, and so I was, uh, 
you know, admired, uh, that you, you did that at the time, um, and how much you committed to it, uh, and took it on as your own personal project. And I could really see that and was like, yeah, man, get it. And then, and then, you know, it, it won a number of awards. Um, and I was, you know, super stoked for you. And so, uh, but is, is it, is there a way, uh, I haven't even, I mean, I don't think I've seen it since the, the last, you know, film festival, uh, mm-hmm. we, we saw each other at, is it like on YouTube or is there a place that people could check it out if they wanted to? Yes. Um, so I think probably the easiest way, if you go to my website, jnelson.com, um, uh, that'll automatically take you to our consciousness in a nutshell website, which is the books splash page. And on there, there's a little button that can tell you, you know, be notified of the publication of the book. And then right below that, that's where like, there's some videos and that'll take you to my YouTube channel. Um, and then I'm putting out YouTube videos. Uh, I did last year. I, I need to do some more, but as this book actually launches and later this year, um, we'll be sharing more videos, but there's an awesome video on there called like the universal reason why people get depressed. Um, and then where I used to be, which is, uh, you know, method and that sort of thing, but there's a 90 second trailer. That's, that's pretty good. And then the full 21 minute pilot is up on there. If people want to watch that too. So that's jnelson.com. Um, yep. If you want to see Nate with a shirt off, uh, it's about 11 minutes in, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, both of us bro we we're greased up for that we we're ready to go the gains were real the pumps were real yeah choreographed fighting between takes oh yeah yeah, yeah you got it people, people don't realize that like anytime you see some yoke motherfucker in a movie who's uh you know shirtless and doing some scene that dude always got a pump right beforehand no, no people like, sit with a perpetual state of, of pump like that uh and so like like that in between takes we're doing the same thing dude push-ups dips sit-ups like same thing just to get uh get sweaty get yoked and uh and make sure that that on camera time because it's immortalized man people uh people don't realize this if like in, until they get i think into the industry that um and maybe people more people realize now you know the emergence of, of youtube and social media and everybody putting their whole fucking life out on display permanently um but back then you know starting out you really had to like take a step back and be like this is forever because once it's out, even if I take it down, someone else has already like swiped it. You know, they have a copy of it. Like it's it's never going away. Like especially if it gets distribution or it's out. Like yeah, you're 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 out there forever, which is cool in a way. But also like yeah, man, if you're if you're gonna be out there, you better look good. Like you wanna you wanna look back one day and you know tell your kids or whatever. Yeah, yeah, dad used to be uh, used to be yoked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, those are the days. Um, but uh, yeah, but definitely check that out uh, for uh, because it was a really well done short, and he uh, you, you committed, man, uh, and and Thank you. you committed without like um, you know it's one thing to commit for like a studio movie when you're getting paid and whatnot to do it, but when it's like your own project, it's a short film that you're hoping is going to be something anyway. To put yourself and your body through that shows a tremendous amount of of commitment and dedication, and I know how insanely hard that is for my background and you know not just sports but the bodybuilding shit i did for you know two years when i was like 17 and 18 and it's not it it is a commitment man it is a commitment to transform your body especially in those type of extremes from muscle gain uh, and putting on the size that you did because you got way bigger than you ever were uh for that movie and then to shrink down and lose it all and you know look like you're you know the machinist and so uh hats off to you man yeah and just to tell people why I did it. So it just, it wasn't just a publicity stunt. It was because people were doing it as a publicity stunt. I wanted to make, f- and you know, to make fun of it inside of a 
21 minute short film or pilot it's kind of hilarious um and so but to make the joke work i had to actually do it and what's funnier is the joke was on me because you know you told me you were like you know you had told me something like adderall like is not going to help you acting at some point and i hadn't realized that but i had taken it to help lose the weight right yeah and um and also to focus and do the tedious tasks i had to do like location scouting and all that stuff but um Anyway, um, one of the last scenes, the last scene of the movie, I had 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 taken Adderall that day and I was like skinny and stuff. And then it didn't look so good. And then we ended up having to reshoot. So after I had gained back that 45 pounds after we had stopped shooting, it was like we have to reshoot now. And so I had to lose it all again in the same year. So I lost another 40 pounds to finish the thing. And um, I cannot recommend that to anybody because I still have residual health effects from that yeah oh yeah you're you're and i know i've heard interviews with christian bale and i'm trying to blank on a couple others who've done similar things um matt damon yeah matt damon it fucks with your body uh it's it's not a good thing in in that short period of time um no and uh and and for those of you who don't know uh just the name method uh, is is mocking method acting and that's basically what the movie is is, is jay's playing a method actor who uh, basically i'd say sociopathic uh in nature and willing to do whatever it takes to you know make it in the industry but like you know is like so many people did for such a period of time you know jared leto's notorious for this mm. of like going oh, all in like just being as method as possible i am this character like which you know we've all done it uh anyone who is an actor i think i mean you you want to immerse yourself as much as possible to to make things things be feel more real and be grounded and authentic sure but there are people who just take it like to such an extreme where it's, it's like it's a publicity thing it's it's like nonsense uh you're you know it's self-indulgent to no end type thing where you can you know some of the best actors and actresses in the world most oscar winning ones don't do that and so mm-hmm. it's uh but it's it's a call out which is why i appreciated the movie more of of the industry we were in and, and actors we you know we were familiar with and so, uh, yep. but yeah, the, the Adderall thing, um, uh, definitely not, uh, conducive for, uh, for good acting performances by any means. I mean, it's, uh, you know, as most of you know, it's basically just methamphetamine. And, uh, if you're, if you're trying yeah. to be grounded, uh, and, and present in a moment and your mind is like, like yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're playing a fucking cokehead, then yeah, you know, the Adderall will, I mean, <laughs> add some realism to that. But if you're trying to just be natural and in the moment and present, um, I remember doing it before too, uh, and which is I think why I said what I said to you. Um, and where I was the only time I'd ever take Adderall back in the day was when I would have to do a ton of work, like tedious work that I didn't want to do, just shit work. And I'm like, and I can't get, couldn't get motivated for it, but I knew I had like you know days worth of work or something that just had to be done. Then I would take it, and I remember during one of those periods of time. You know, I got some uh, bigger theatrical audition, you know, a lot of dialogue and and whatever else. And I just I remember going into that thing, heart like racing a million miles an hour. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with me? (laughs) And like and thought it was going to make me focus more. But it actually did the exact opposite where I flubbed lines. I was like, not myself. I wasn't present. And I was like. I, I I botched it. I totally, it was one of those things you walk out of and you're like, well, I'm never coming back to that casting office again after that. And, uh, and yeah. it was, it was just this lesson learned that, you know, uh, I mean, outside of once again, uh, perhaps the, the very small percentage. And, you know, I think we briefly touched on this yesterday when we, um, just first connected to, uh, to, 
iron out the technical difficulties for today. Um, that, you know, by and large, um, I think this might be a good transition to really kind of dive into, uh, into the book, but that yeah. most people don't, uh, have any biochemical deficiency or need for the medicines that they take, uh, whether it's antidepressants like the SSRIs, um, mm-hmm. things like Adderall. Um, these things aren't conditions. The big pharma invents new things every day so that they can, you know, force feed you drugs you don't need that ultimately will damage your body and require more drugs down the road that they will also, you know, make and, and create a disorder for the disorder they created before and have, you know, the, the shiny new pill that you'll take. Like it's, it's absurd. Most people, don't need it. And, uh, and this can, you know, uh, by and large, it's life is lifestyle choices. It's shitty decisions made. It's shame. It's, it's, it's guilt. It's, uh, it's anger. It's the state of the world. It's things that have you depressed or in a state that, you know, um, make you feel, uh, depressed, like, like most people experience, but, uh, there's not any biochemical issue with you. There's not a serotonin deficiency. It's, it's life choices. It's perspective. It's consciousness. It's things that can be, uh, changed and, choices. uh, yeah, choices. Yes. And, and story, the story that you're telling yourself, there's yes. Uh, big yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's, let's do this then. Um, the book is consciousness in a nutshell, mm-hmm. going to, uh, throw that up here, um, and post so everybody can see it. And, uh, I know we're going to be addressing as we go on, uh, some particular, uh, graphs and charts and things that you're, you use in the book uh, to mm-hmm. kind of explain things. And so for everybody listening um, on, a, on a podcast platform, this will also be on YouTube uh, with those visuals, but we will try and do our best to uh, explain uh, what it is that, that Jay is uh, showing and, and discussing. But um, if there's anything that I, I missed, you know, as far as kind of, oh, I guess this is probably what's going to lead in if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, you had a near-death experience which I'm not aware of at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear that because I believe that was what changed your life, if I'm not mistaken, and led down this road of, of consciousness and writing this book. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's very fair to say. There's um, two, one psychedelic experience and one near-death experience, and they happened inside of one week, and they happened the same week that we filmed our method scene together. <laughs> really? Dude, the next day after we had filmed uh, the boxing scene, you know, like I, I was in heavy psychonaut mode and or, you know, I was I was about to celebrate because we had just done something and I was just about to commit to three months of pain. And so it was like, you know, me and my roommates, like, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to try five methoxy dimethyltryptamine? Yeah, let's do that. OK, sure. So um, we, you know, like roommate number one, he lo- he loads up the pipe goes to the garden, has an amazing time. Roommate, roommate number two goes to the garden, has an amazing time. And then I pack on my 25 milligrams on top of whatever they did not finish. And I, you know, set up my camera. I'm like, when I come back, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, regale what happened, where I went, you know? Yeah. So I come back and I cry for 20 minutes straight. <laughs> it was the most intense experience I've ever had um psychedelics wise and then a week later i had a near-death experience that rewrote the source code of who i was going to be for the rest of my life and uh can't explain how much a near-death experience will realign your value structure and hierarchy of everything um but it will and uh that's what happened to my sister and that's what happened to me yeah uh and for those who don't know uh, 5-methoxy dimethyltryptamine is 5-meo dmt um which Mm -hmm. might be more popular in uh uh, in the 
street terms, I guess, if you will, uh, for it, just, just in case, uh, people didn't understand that. And that's interesting, uh, to hear, um, you, have you done, uh, regular, uh, what is it? DD or DMT and, and NNDMT. Thank you. NNDMT. Yes. Uh, I've done NNDMT and then Changa, which is, yeah. uh, NNDMT mixed with a, yeah, with, yeah, uh, MAOI. So yeah. it, uh, is more like totally. ayahuasca, but it's it lasts like 20 to 30 minutes and changa is definitely my favorite way to consume that um if you can yeah Um, i'm very familiar yeah i I may or may not know a person who decided to become a chemist and uh, oh really and uh and extract you know uh dmt um and within that you know did um you know made enhanced herb as well as changa um and enhanced herb is basically you know the same thing where you're infusing it with like eight different herbs that uh, are soothing like on your your lungs and your throat like cause dmt is oh. harsh it's like super super harsh as you as you know just like straight free base dmt is i mean it's like smoking like converse rubber like from the bottom of like a converse shoe it's pretty yeah. gnarly um and so you infuse it in these like eight different herbs that uh, that make it more soothing when it goes down, and then yeah, changa um, is as Jay was saying, uh, basically it's the infusing of DMT um, on the copy leaf, which uh, has the, the or whatever I mean, whatever MAOI uh, leaf you want, but the copy leaf I think is more standard, I believe, uh, as far as what they in the Amazon um, what they uh, what they use, but um, you're basically mimicking the effect of ayahuasca, but. Uh, that's that's like kind of the complaint I think a lot of people have with DMT is because it's so instantaneous. It's such an instant blast off into the other side of the veil that um, it's very hard to take anything back. It's really hard to integrate uh, because things are so profound and they're so fast and mm-hmm. so overwhelming that uh, it's, it's really hard to take things back from that experience. But ayahuasca, you know, is like more of a five hour thing where you can integrate a lot better, um, have, you know, peaks and valleys with it. And, uh, and and retain things and do proper integration. And so Changa kind of became, uh, I think it's an Australian guy who, who came up with that, if I'm not mistaken, um, who came up with the whole, the whole Changa idea. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I think that's the case. And, uh, and so the, the beauty of Changa was uh, slowing that blast off a little bit, making it a little more of a gradual uh, blast off and, and breakthrough and, uh, and allowing you to stay there a little longer and uh and and retain some more you know experience information downloads whatever the case may be i would agree um someone explained it once and i thought this was great you know if dmt is like a shotgun into the universe like into outer space uh changa or changa is kind of like i don't know how the way how you yeah, say it either. by the way um, <laughs> I think, yeah, okay i don't know uh, it's more like a you know like a roller coaster click 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 like as you're climbing yeah you can sip you can sip it yep and then blast off um whereas dmt you know yep. usually you have to vaporize it and uh before you even put down the pipe you vaporized it and you're in the next world yeah so, um yeah. yeah and you know the whole thing about psychonautics and altered states of consciousness and how this all ties in with the book is because you know i it wasn't like my life goal to be like a psychonaut exactly but my partner and i at the time i was we were very um interested in sasha and ann shulgan Mm -hmm. you know that partner yeah yeah Yeah. and we were and silk road had come out at the time and so 
you know, we were into trying so many different compounds. And so before this near death experience had happened, I tried many, many, many different compounds. And so when you combine that, when it's like, if you want to know what baseline consciousness is, you really have to do something like that 90 day thing where you're not taking anything in no drugs, no alcohol, no caffeine, nothing, and then see what it's like just to be a human just to be alive. Mm -hmm. And then and then start toying with that. And then, you know, this is kind of like mental cartography. So back in the day when, you know, we didn't have satellites and that sort of thing, how did they make maps of the world and globes, you know, in globes, like we had these things like hundreds of years ago. And so that's the kind of way that people are studying consciousness right now, you have to stretch and expand and perturb consciousness and see what happens and come back to baseline and uh, record the results. And, you know, you do this enough time across enough patients, enough volunteers, enough subjects or self subjects, if you want. And uh, you start to get a, a map of what the brain looks like and, and what compounds do and what they're capable of and what doorways they can open up for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I mean, cannot agree more. Um, I am interested to know, uh, before we dive into the, the NDE, uh, because both of these events clearly are what changed the trajectory of your life and what you ultimately wanted to do and, and your, your purpose. Um, what was it that was so profound about your, your five MEO? Because my five MEO was far different than my, any of my DMT oh, really? experiences. Um, and, uh, and it was, I felt far more loving and embracing, um, than DMT, which could be kind of, you know, full of fuckery sometimes with, <laughs> with, with, with the beings you meet and experiences you have, uh, where five MEO just felt like a white cloud of, of it's, it's, it was so similar. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to dive into that. I'm curious about your, um, what, what happened there that was so profound that led you to cry for 20 minutes after and, and have these breakthroughs. Um, well, I would say, you know, this is 2013. I was, um, I guess scared of death then. Um, I am not so much anymore. I'm actually not anymore. Um, I've come around on what I think death is and, you know, how it just fits into my schema. Um, it's, it's a natural part of life. And, and I was just so afraid that I was going to die or, and, and I think I subconsciously really, I really did not like myself back then. And so, you know, I mean, when you don't like yourself, what do you do? You, you have negative behavior patterns. And so one of my negative behavior patterns was psychedelics, man. Like, I mean, not psychedelics exactly, but like, you know, there's a history of misuse for sure with drugs with me. And, um, and so I didn't like that about myself. And so, you know, these molecules, they have a way of teaching you things and, 5-MeO-DMT, ayahuasca, the mother, whatever you want to call it, like showed me more about who I was and showed me what death would be like and showed me, you know, in my life flash before my eyes in a series of Facebook posts. And the, the note attached to that was, you are on Facebook way too much. You are living your life trying to do this social media thing that's not you. And it was, it was just like, it made me sick. Mm. Um Another time, uh, have you ever tried combo, by the way, the frog poison? Combo, yeah. You say everything. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, one thing, one thing I know, uh, 
from the, the shaman that I, I did Cambo with was he called it Cambo. So I'm like, all right, well, if you're calling it Cambo, because I same thing, I was like Combo or like Changa Changa, Cambo Combo. I've heard both and I'm always combo. like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, fuck, I don't know. Uh, but he, yeah. he was calling it Cambo. He's from the Amazon. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to default to whatever, whatever it is you said. But yes, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a, a poison frog, basically. Um, you can explain to them. Yeah, I have done it. Uh, <laughs> I did it because of you, actually. Oh, like, really? I, well, because I was, I was. In, um, I don't think I had heard of it at the time, and this was when you, I think, came over to my apartment um, before the last film festival. Um, and I can't remember what you came here. I think you were borrowing something, some piece of equipment for Method. I can't remember what it was, but you had, you had to borrow something, and I think you were either returning it or whatever. And we had like a conversation out in that little. Uh, mm-hmm. turn around by the fountain and um and you had just done it and you were like showing me the burns on your arm uh, or like the, the marks and i was like whoa that's crazy and i was like uh and and i think it crossed my radar maybe before that but i i mean very in a limited fashion um and i still at that time hadn't fully embarked on my real psychonaut journey. Like I had, you know, done mm. mushrooms a number of times, like in college and, and salvia and whatever. stuff. But it's all recreational. <laughs> none, of, none of it was with intent. None of it was with proper set setting integration. It was just fuckery, uh-huh. you know, and, uh, and that can, that can always, you know, go bad. Uh, these are like the most powerful compounds on the planet and and they deserve our respect and reverence you know when we we take them and if we don't then it can go it can be a very difficult night um or day or 24 hour period depending on what you're doing and so um i think in a lot of ways actually um because i knew you were you were also i think describing that day peyote because you just had done that too i think you, you described it as like lsd meets meets mdma and i was like well that sounds amazing um yep <laughs> and uh and yeah and so at that time that i think the seed was kind of planted for me and i was like hmm, cambo and i'm like all right all right i'm gonna have to look into that and, and then inevitably did um and I had a, a day that i did uh cambo in the morning uh rape hape another one same thing exactly yeah, i was gonna bring that up too. Yeah, it's so annoying uh rape or hape in the afternoon and then at night five meo and so that way like the full wow. the full cleanse was done with cambo um which for those of you who don't know it's not psychedelic by any means i mean maybe it can because of the amount of pain you're in um something endogenous might happen uh with like you know something but usually it is you're hanging on for dear life because you you literally just poisoned yourself and uh and it's but it's the ultimate cleanse um and after i'd say you know a day or two you are like euphoric and a, a brand new human being but it's a full detox um and it has a number of uh I believe alkaloids uh, within it that are actually able to pass the blood brain barrier, um, which is what same thing like the tryptamines like DMT. That is why they're so effective is that they, our blood brain barrier is a very powerful thing and it doesn't let shit in. It's like the the most stringent uh, bouncer that there is. And so very few things are able to pass the blood brain barrier, but for some reason, things like DMT are just ushered in like, oh, hey, how you doing? Come on. Come on. on Welcome. Good to see you. You're back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And Cambo has a number of these things, too. And so um, it's been used in in Amazonian uh, culture for thousands of years. Uh, Have you ever seen the pictures of people who look like they have these little circle burns all over their body? Um, That's what those are. Those are Cambo burns. And so they're basically burning themselves and then smearing um, the 
the excretion from the back of uh, the cambo frog into the open wound and uh, and it creates this massive purge um that takes place but uh, i mean they said that it allowed them to see at night to hunt at night to become like the animal that their dna ultimately like morphed because of it there's some really i'm not sure how much scientific uh research has gone into that but these guys hunt at night without lights without anything uh like uh, their dna has been altered like with the frog like after this period of time that the the they don't need it. Like take from that what you will. I don't know, but like, uh, they don't need uh, light anymore. And they hunt at night with, uh, like, like a frog, I guess with the, the vision or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, I would agree that it, it does sharpen your senses a little bit, but I would issue a strong caution, which is I haven't taken combo for years now. Um, I did probably 15 sessions maybe. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, combo, it's interesting because if LSD provides an ego death experience or like a mental death, um, combo for me seems to provide a, a bodily death. Uh, so it's it's almost like your body feels like it's renewed. And in some ways, it's like the internet cache has been cleared out of your mind, uh, which is the best thing about it, in my opinion. It's like that way that you feel the next day. I mean, you felt it. Oh, yeah. It's 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 like electric. Everything is renewed. Like you know, touches slightly different. Like, it's just like, everything is just a little bit different, but I, the, the warrant, I'm sorry, the, the issue I want to warrant, what am I trying to say? The caution I'm trying to say is you cannot be more sensitive to pleasure without being simultaneously more sensitive to pain. Mm -hmm. And so you may sharpen your senses, but it costs something. And, um, you know, I mean, it it changed the trajectory of my life in some ways in, in a good way, ultimately, but I mean, it's like you're 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 asking yourself to grow up each time you do it. Like I don't know, it pushes you. It it it, it catalyzes you to become that next version of yourself. And you know, sometimes you're not ready mentally. You're not ready, yeah. but then your body's ahead of you, and then you have to play catch up, and that's not fun. Um, so I will actually do combo again. Um, I'm I would love to do it again, but uh, I just would have to issue that caution. Well, if, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, full disclaimer to everybody. Uh, I mean, I would say if I, if I ran the world, uh, psychedelics would be required every six <laughs> months, uh, uh, and, and, uh, you know, a proper set and setting, you know, with uh, medical screenings and whatnot. Um, uh, but, uh, these things have been used for tens of thousands of years. They predate all religion on the planet. They've been used. I mean, I, in many cases, like books, like Brian rescues immortality key. If you've read that or haven't read that, oh my God. Jay, check that out. That will blow your fucking mind. Um, did all this archaeochemical dating uh, and all these ancient religious vessels um, and religious sacrament vessels, more particularly um, throughout Eleusis and, and Catholicism, yeah. everything, and, and found that all of them had traces of, of things like DMT and psilocybin, argot, you know, the precursor to LSD, and uh, and a number of these other things that show that this is this is and these experiences are echoed by anybody who's ever done this um who's ever really you know become a psychonaut uh, or even just had a really transformative um you know religious experience on a psychedelic that you you commune with that god source like you you come in contact with that infinite love and intelligence in the universe that you are ultimately one with and a part of and so much of what's echoed in many of these religions uh those experiences and those those truths i think are are deeply tied to the psychedelic experience and that is his kind of hypothesis and he's not the first to have it but he is the first to prove it uh, that this was the case and so 
uh, when I say, you know, I think the, if I rule the world, it would be, you know, a requirement uh, because because of the ego death that's involved, because of the the oneness component that comes out of it, of realizing there is no they and them. It's all us and we and it, the oneness of all things that we're connected to it all. Like that's one of the biggest, I think, revelations and, and takeaways from the psychedelic experiences is seeing that interconnectivity between all things. Uh, and, and having that appreciation and respect for all things because they're, they're alive and they're sacred and they're real. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it, it has, we have to dissolve the hubris of our ego, uh, and our center of the universe mentality that is just so blatantly ignorant and wrong, um, in order to really appreciate that and, you know, ultimately save this planet and, uh, and each other. But, um, we're not uh, in saying that people should do this. Uh, you know, yeah. it's uh, not. Uh, it's your own choice. Uh, if you have the calling to do it, that's what I always say. If they call to you, uh, they'll find you. They always did with me. When I was ready, they showed up. When the student is ready, the teacher arrives. And uh, and right. every and every time that happened in my life, when I was like, all right, I want to. It's time for me to you know try LSD for the first time to try psilis or you know uh, ayahuasca, a boga, DMT, whatever it is. Like it found me when I was ready because I was ready at the time, and then it just made it. It's like oh yeah, here I am, hey, and uh, and I was like great, and uh, and that's that's how it should be. Um, but you know, obviously uh, there are things to be considered, um, and and you know safety, set setting, integration, all that stuff, and uh, and mm-hmm. you know. Um, and history perhaps of um i think the only thing that's medically been proven is uh is it can accelerate uh psychosis um like schizophrenia and stuff like that but uh, if, if you have it if you are if you already have schizophrenia like you know early stages because usually it shows i think by what the age of 28 at the latest or 30 um that if you you know are going to be schizophrenic and you perhaps took a psychedelic you know at a younger age it could accelerate that and that's been really the only thing that's medically been proven but all this other nonsense of you're going to crack your back and have a fucking acid flashback. Like this is just such propaganda yep, from the war on drugs. Debunked. Oh, it's such nonsense. Oh yeah. Such nonsense. Or a couple gives birth to a baby squid or something after doing LSD. Like that was a, that was a headline that was yeah. in the papers. This is real. This is real war on drugs propaganda. And it's all, bla- I mean, it's all blatant yeah. lies. And you look at all the studies coming out of maps, everything happening at John Hopkins. I mean, th- these, these clinical trials are happening all over the place. And, and this, this was known in the sixties. Like the, these trials were happening in the fifties and sixties. And they proved back then the insane medical benefit of these things, especially as it pertained to, you know, spiritual consciousness, awakening, freeing of addiction, depression. Like this was already known. This information was out. It was just suppressed. And, uh, and now there's this, you know, Renaissance, thank God that's happening. And all the clinical data is coming out once again, showing the exact same thing of how, mm-hmm. uh, incredibly safe these things are, you know, once again, if done appropriately with, you know, the, the proper set setting integration and, and, you know, the reverence they deserve. But, um, it's, it's just crazy, man, how, how society, uh, how the government more particularly, and, you know, we can unpack that more, but we, we don't need to, as far as, you know, who pulls the strings of the government and vested entrances, uh, in, interests of, you know, big pharma and other people who, you know, uh, want to keep you with a bandaid and pump you full of things that, uh, don't actually fix any of the underlying issues that are making you unhappy. Um, and in fact, cause more where you could take a psychedelic, uh, and, and instantly have a rebirth and come out the other side and not need any of it. And this has happened time and time again. And I know you've experienced it. I've experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, did you know about um, Bill Wilson's involvement with Delicid and the LSD trials in fifties and sixties? 
who's Bill Wilson? The founder of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, oh, yeah, uh, yes. Thank you. Uh, I I know. Well, I know of um, his early. Uh, early involvement in it, but I also know that, um, along that the same thing with AA and NA that the, I think the number one contributor to AA are alcohol companies and, uh, and the same really? with, yeah, with, uh, with NA are, is like pharma. Um, because their success rate is, is 3%. It's a 3% success rate at AA. Like it, oh, uh, wow. it, it's, I didn't know that. It, oh yeah, it's insanely low. And they, they, cause they don't want you getting better. Like they're, that, that's profits for them. Like that's uh, it, it's something like it's it's something insanely low like that. Um, uh, I, I know it's uh, it, I can't remember where I read it. It's been a long time, but I know it's like in the single single digits or something like that. But uh, nonetheless, insanely low uh, compared to you know the the alcohol studies that were done with LSD in the fifties, whereas like fifty percent of people who are alcoholics they did like a thousand of them, I believe, or something like that, um, and they gave them LSD, and fifty percent of them quit and never touch it again after that LSD experience 50% Mm -hmm. like insane numbers uh comparatively and um yeah and so for the people that are like wondering well how are these psychedelics able to achieve such transformative powers um I'm happy to go into that sort of thing um but yeah the whole Bill Wilson thing is interesting because he wanted to use LSD as the catalyst for getting to people to to stop drinking. And, um, but you know, you got to keep in mind, this was in the fifties and sixties, and this was just an experimental compound that, you know, Sandoz pharmaceuticals had sent out to so many all over the world. And it didn't carry the same emotional or political baggage that the word LSD carries today, even though it's getting better. Um, but I kind of want to bring that word back to listen the way that it was initially. Yeah. Um, because you say acid and people are like, Oh, you know, yeah. I, I, I mean, I actually that. like that word a lot, but uh, but a lot of people, especially you know, in the older generation, yeah, yeah. I mean, or they don't even realize that lysergic diet, um, lysergic acid diethylamide is the same thing. LSD is acid. They think they're two separate things. Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're the same thing. <laughs> well, uh, this is a a perfect time. Let's do this. Let's. Uh, I, I want to dive into the book, um, okay. and so let let's do it. The book is Consciousness in a Nutshell. There's a lot of books on consciousness out there. There's a lot of things that have been done and said, and so uh, it's going to be really interesting to see your your perspective, your research, your take, and uh, and and the angle that you've done in this. So let's uh, let's dive in with that and kind of explain to the audience uh, what is consciousness in a nutshell. So, uh, consciousness in a nutshell is a project that my wife and I have been working on together for, um, for a while now. I started it, uh, five years ago. Um, and so I'm so glad that it's now done. We're just in our beta reading phase right now, but, uh, it's written in the style of creative nonfiction. And the reason I wrote it that way is because I'm writing it in spite of all those other books on consciousness. If you've read any of any books on consciousness, usually they're boring. Um, and then in the, in the, about 200 pages, you want to blow your brains out. Like they're just not compelling. They're not interesting. They're not written well. So, you know, you have a lot of scientists that then become writers, but you don't have writers that ju- usually become scientists. So um, I guess I'd, I'd fancy myself more in that second camp. And so I wrote this in a way because I wanted it to be not for dummies, but I wanted it to be accessible because, you know, you can get a lot of this information and you can have a lot of really meaningful spiritual experiences or just 
experiences you can't describe, whatever you want to call them, um, on psychedelics or, you know, you don't even have to dig psychedelics. Just there's so many different state changing techniques that you can do fasting, dehydrating yourself, um, hypertrophic you know, breathing, holotropic breathing, sensory deprivation tanks, you know, meditation, movement, meditation, chanting, uh, there's, you know, ex like dancing for an extremely long time. Like there's just so many ways societies and cultures all over the world have figured out how to access altered states of consciousness and the beneficial healing aspects that they provide. Because I mean, you know, we look at our problems and, and problems are eternal. So it's not the problems. It's how we choose to view them and how we choose to interpret the problems. That's the problem. And so, you know, with, with most anything, it's like you get too, too, too focused on something. You can't see the forest for the trees. And so you need, you know, if you get stuck on writing something or stuck on editing something, sometimes what you need most is to take a step back, go for a ride, go for a walk, change your state of mind, change your environment. And then when you come back, the problem is fresh and new, and maybe it's already solved. Maybe your subconscious already worked on it. And so the whole benefit with psychedelics, in my opinion, is they give you the same sort of space and mental distance that you need to see a problem with fresh eyes. And that's why I enjoy them. And that's why um, they're benefit. I mean, they're beneficial for, uh, for helping us heal ourselves. Yeah, I, I cannot yeah. agree more. It's always, it's always the reset button afterwards, no matter what the journey, no matter if it was a tough one, or a euphorically orgasmic one, where you're, you're floating in love clouds with, uh, with infinite source or mother or whatever it is, uh, or whether or not you're in the deepest pits of freaking internal hell and, and, and self exploration and confronting, you know, your shadow and, and whatever else, you always come out the other side, grateful for the experience. Sometimes it may take a couple of days if it was really, uh, you know, a difficult journey, but you never regret it. And you're always, uh, it's almost like, you know, going to battle and coming back alive, like where you have that appreciation again for, for life, because you, in you know, in, in my experience in a lot of these places, especially a BOGA where one of my ceremonies lasted three days in, in a non-ordinary state. And I, by the time I came back, I was like, Whoa. I was so happy to be, to be back to the land of the living. And even then it still took days after that before like the tracers went away and other things. But um, just that appreciation of coming through and realizing how, how powerful we are for one, how, mm -hmm. how, how strong our mind is to manipulate us into thinking we can't do things or things aren't possible. And that's programming. Yeah. Believe that's external programming, you know, that's, that's been impressed upon us, but nonetheless it becomes our paradigm and our reality that we reinforce. And you realize that like, man, like, my problems are really small. Like what I just came through, like the places I just was for this, this period of time where nobody could save me. Cause nobody can, you know, that when you're, when you're, when you're journeying on psychedelic, nobody can save you. There is like, you're, you're on for the ride and you have to just let go. If you fight it, you're fucked. If you, you know, uh, do anything that, uh, is even remotely a form of resistance, it's going to be bad. And you have to just realize that like, no one's going to stop this. Nobody, no, no one around you. Like, it's just you, it's just you in this, this compound now. And whether that's, mm -hmm. you know, a compound that takes you outside of you or takes you deeper inside of you, whatever it is, it's your journey. Just like you're fast, just like these things where it's just you. Yeah, man. I cannot imagine what three days must've been like. <laughs> I did take two CT seven, which is like a 14 to 16 hour trip. Um, and that was too much. 
that was just wow. 2C27. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, so Shulgin, you know, looked yeah. at the um, the chemical compound mescaline, you know, which is found mm-hmm. in peyote or San Pedro cacti, and he started tinkering with it, and he made many different compounds and wrote about them in Pical, uh, the 2C series. He made so many of those, and there were a dozen that were called, like, uh, Shulgin's dozen, I guess. And then um, 2CT7 was on there, and we tried it. It was... Ugh. Again, a bunch of throwing up, but, oh, it reminded me, uh, the reason why I, I asked you if you like, or I was going to ask you about the combo thing was, um, you know, sometimes you have these revelations when you're, you know, you're, it's not like psychedelic when, when you're on combo, but, um, I threw up certain images. Have you ever thrown up like certain images or you knew what you're throwing up? Yeah. 100%. I, I would visualize something as I think it's more of a past childhood trauma or is it something like that? And I would immediately throw up afterwards. The image would come and then I would puke it up and it was nonstop. And, yeah, yeah. And that's you purging that memory or, per, you know, maybe that is trying to say something. That memory is trying to say something. So, you know, these compounds have a way of teaching you something and it, it's not always clear what they're saying. But I mean, with combo, I remember throwing up and this was a long time ago, but like I was, I used to watch porn and, uh, that was one of the things I was throwing up. I was throwing mm. up images of that and my body was saying, cut it out. Yeah. Stop. What are you doing? This is, you're participating in something you don't need to. And, uh, you're, you don't need to do this anymore. Uh, the porn epidemic <laughs> is, is, a, is a very real thing. Um, but that's uh, that's definitely a topic for for another day that we could dive into. Uh, yeah. But that's right. definitely very real, man, uh, and what that's done to to young men and old men alike um, has been, I think, very damaging uh, in, in a relationship stance, um, in in many regards. But um, but yeah. So uh, to to back to what you were you were saying when you were um, defining ultimately kind of uh, consciousness and. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the essence of, of the book itself. Yes. Uh, so the quick pitch would be, uh, if you've seen the TV series Cosmos, this is kind of like Cosmos, but um, for the brain, and it's also a book. Um, so I guess you could say it's more like the original Cosmos, published back in 1844, that inspired Carl Sagan to write his TV series that came out in 1980, which inspired you know them to make the, the, the Cosmos series that most everybody probably knows with Neil deGrasse Tyson. But... Um, Yeah, so it's written in the style of creative nonfiction. So um, you're an actor, so I'm sure you've probably read An Actor Prepares, maybe, by Stanislavski. Okay, so that is a perfect example of creative nonfiction because in An Actor Prepares, Konstantin Konstantin Stanislavski was one of the greatest acting teachers of all time, but he knew that he could do so much better. It wouldn't be good to just write down his lectures verbatim and just like a stenographer, just like write down what happened. So what he did was he ended up publishing uh, three narratives um, and they were all written from the perspective of a student attending a fictional acting school. So, you know, and they're learning from a guy named Tortsov. And, you know, reading this thing, you're like, Tortsov is Stanislavski. And this person named Kotsia, who, you know, you're, you're reading his, his diary, you realize he's really like a young Stanislavski. And so by writing the way, or by teaching how to recreate a psyche in this way, Stanislavski found that he could expose more of the psychological elements to acting than any textbook ever could. And so that's kind of what uh, creative nonfiction is. 
um, it's 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 telling. It's like teaching acting, but in a, in an interesting way. So through a diary. Um, so that's what he did. What I chose to do, and my wife and I chose to do, was to write this from the perspective of a neuropsychopharmacologist who's got eight hours left to live, and all he wants to do is share his last, like, is condense ten years of research into one letter that he's writing to a stranger. And so, you know, it's like I'm just going to tell you everything I know about the subject of consciousness in eight hours or less, and um, I'm doing it so maybe you'll do me a favor and maybe I can ask you a question. Um, but you know, he just knows he's, he's trapped in a room with no doors or windows, no way out. And, uh, this is the only way to make his life not meaningless, which is, you know, share this information. Um, and so it's kind of written in a, inside of a psychological thriller. So I think you'd really dig the book actually, because it's not like any other book on consciousness where, you know, it's just, it's just not straight nonfiction that orthodox, like, you know, no dips into story. It's just like a laundry list of facts. That's not what it is. It dips into story now and then. So kind of like Cosmos, the TV series where you got a, a narrator and a ship of the imagination and they dip into story here and there. And then they're giving you information all the way. It's just different textures of information that they're giving you in different ways of presenting the same information. Um, and so I try to do all that, but inside of a book, because that's the best medium for this message. Well, that sounds like a, a, a very apt approach for this, uh, because yes, a lot of this literature that's out there can be very academic in nature, very boring, and a lot of people aren't going to touch it. Um, and so that was, a, I think, very wise uh, and creative choice. Um, so within taking, you know, the creative nonfiction approach to to writing consciousness in a nutshell, um, what would you say, I guess, then, uh, are some of the key key takeaways uh or or key perspectives that you you are posing in this book um that might differentiate it from from others that are out there uh or or what is it just more importantly that you really want the audience to know um you know about this book before it before it comes out because you're when when is it expected to release um by christmas this year i think that would be um that would be reasonable. So um, again, if you guys want to go to jnelson.com, that's where you can be notified of publication. We'll just send you an email when it's ready. Um, But yeah, we're uh, wrapping up the beta reading phase pretty soon and then moving on to final manuscript, manuscript lockdown. So nice. It's exciting, man. I'm so excited. Five years to work on one project is the most I've ever done. Yeah. So it's worth it. You know, but um. Yeah. So what, so it's different already, but what people like, what I really wanted to say was, you know, like if I could solve one problem in the world, it would be identity. Um, Identity. Like, you know, you look at like, what's the root cause of every problem I can think of. It all comes back to identity. People might say greed. They might say money. They might say Donald Trump. They might say anything. Right. And, but if you, if you, if you zoom out and really pin it down, it all comes back to identity. Cause if everybody knew who they really were and what they're really capable of and what this universe really is, then would we have the same problems we have? No, I mean, maybe, maybe, but uh, doubtful. At least it would be a little bit less. Yeah. And, and, you know, perspective would be there. Yes. And so perspective is everything. If I had to sum up the entire book in four words or whatever, perspective is everything. 
Um, that's three words. I can't count. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yeah, perspective is everything. And so this book tries to, and so the, I mean, the whole thing about fiction and the, the great thing about fiction is, is to dive into someone else's lens and see the world through their eyes. I mean, you know, that's like the beauty of that book, uncle Tom and what that was able to do, um, you know, for, getting slavery to get abolished and that sort of thing. Like it was a really powerful book that got people to put themselves in the perspective of someone else. And, uh, and so I guess I'm not really comparing this to uncle Tom, but I'm comparing it to the idea that we need to consider multiple different perspectives on everything. And especially when it comes to the question, what is consciousness? So the thing that I think elevates my position and elevates the book then and sets it apart from other books on consciousness is because most books on consciousness are written by doctors and I'm not knocking doctors at all, but I mean, my book is filled with quotes from doctors, but if you spend eight to 10 years of your life studying one thing, you have a very narrow perspective on what the world is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the only thing that I think sets me apart is, is that I was kind of one of those, and I hate to use the word polymath because it sounds like, arrogant or something but like renaissance man might be better i had varied interests very very varied interests and so this just gave me a different perspective than what everybody else was writing down in their books on consciousness and you know for three years after method i sat there and i was like well i'm not a doctor i'm not a neuroscientist i'm not any of these things why would i have to do this so for three years i sat in depression from 2013 to 2016 till i figured out this is what i needed to do because i was denying it i was like i what why why would i have to do this but my body was telling me it was like no you have to do this because no one else actually could piece this all together so you have to and so that's what i chose to do which was you know, take a multidisciplinary approach to the study of consciousness in the same way that like, if you were going to study light, you have to study all forms of light, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, for people that might not know, like light, you know, we think you talk about light and you think about like the lights on or the sun or the rainbow, you know, you like think about all those colors and that sort of thing. But then you forget that like light is a medium but it's, it's an oscillating wave pattern, but infrared radio waves, um, gamma rays, these are all the same thing. It's all light. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and what we perceive the visible spectrum is one 10 trillionth of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah. One 10 trillionth. And we think we know what color is. We think we know what vision is or what light is. And so the whole idea is like, you know, you can't not study altered states of consciousness. And if you're reading a book that doesn't talk about altered states of consciousness and doesn't talk about psychedelics or anything like that, they're doing you a disservice because they're not giving you the full picture. If you don't study altered states of consciousness, then you you just, you have nothing. The problem is, is consciousness, we only have the one. There is no like consciousness A and consciousness B. You, you don't have that. We only have our own consciousness and then we can subject it to certain um activities that will make it stretch or or shrink you know our perception of time can stretch or shrink so we can perturb consciousness in this way and that's how we can uh understand what baseline is and so through my experiences as a psychonaut and through just having a a wide palette of 
what I read, I was able to bridge together many different fields. So coding, you know, neuropsych, neuropsychopharmacology, um, neuroscience, evolutionary biology, um, cosmology, just weaving together philosophy, all these sorts of things. And so where the book ends up is, is giving people a perspective and an understanding about consciousness that they're just probably not going to find in another book because it's too specialized. This is the broad strokes. This is giving you the overview, but it also opens and closes the question. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to say we solved consciousness, but I'll just say we make one novel contribution to the conversation that makes everything worth it. And that will change, that will change everything. It will. That's awesome. And, yeah. uh, and you know, you're, what you're talking about earlier, just the comparison of, of how you, you made the book and, uh, and not that you're comparing it to uncle Tom, but like just the empathy is what's lacking, right? It is our inability to ever put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as soon as we're able to do that, I think we will solve many of the problems on earth, but because everything is tied up in identity, uh, and, and ego, um, that it's really hard for us to step outside of that and realize that there are other perspectives or other experiences. There are, there are other interpretations of all these things and that, uh, we really have to have an empathetic and a compassion, uh, compassionate and open mind, uh, to really ever uncover the truth if we, if we truly are seeking it. And so uh, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that perspective uh, and that approach to it. And I think that's what's going to make this book really stand out. Because um, this is such a, you know, my brother, I don't think I've ever told you, but he's a founder of founder and co-founder of five different biotech companies dealing in immunology and anti-aging wow. and virology, et cetera. Oh, is that your secret? <laughs> yeah, Anti-aging. Well, oh God, I'm I'm waiting. Just trust me. He's 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 found a way to stop you from from ever aging again, regress you five years, and you'll never age again until you die. I mean, you'll die at the same time you die, but physically, aesthetically, there'll be no protein breakdown, and you'll you'll look the same. Uh, there's wow. yeah, there's there's he's he's a he's a freak genius, um, and has you know a COVID vaccine and human trials and other things, and so, um, but he you know always made a good point because his approach to his approach to this industry, he was a, a computer scientist before this. Uh, that was what uh, his, his major in, in college was. And he jumped into this field because once again, like all of the revolutionary thinkers in our time, all of the greats, all, there's a number of things they have in common. Psychedelics is one of them because most of them attribute a lot of their breakthroughs to their, their psychedelic experiences. Um, you know, people really know like the, the gates and jobs and, um, and, and many of other, you know, other artists and, and professionals around the world, all of Silicon Valley. I mean, they all go to, uh, you know, Costa Rica and Peru and do ayahuasca, you know, every, every year. Um, but the other thing is that, uh, it's playing outside of the system, outside of the indoctrination of, of education of, uh, of, he always says a great thing that like science progresses one funeral at a time. Because mm-hmm. these people who study the same thing you're saying, they have a narrow scope, a narrow view. They study it their whole life, and it becomes dogmatic to them. That they become so uh, – their ego and their legacy is threatened by new information, which is the most unscientific thing there is. Because you should oh, be yeah. exploring truth at all costs. And if anything comes up that contradicts that, uh, then you have to immediately change your, your hypothesis and, uh, and account for that. And people don't. As a matter of fact, they suppress and, uh, and and hold down new scientists who present new information 
and try to discredit them at all costs. And so he approached uh, the human body, believing it was a computer the same way. So he's like, everything is zeros and ones. Like that is information. And the, the body has to be pure information because you'll never, you never get the same cold twice. So therefore that information is stored somewhere in your adaptive immune system. Somewhere in there is a code that is programmed to identify any cold or virus that you got before and immediately mm-hmm. kill it on site. So there has to be information stored. The body has to be a computer and I'm going to hack it and find out how. And he was told he was crazy, like look down upon all this shit. Now he travels the world, Cambridge, Harvard, MIT, Caltech, Yale, like he speaks to triple PhDs in this shit. And he has a bachelor's in computer science because I mean, he's also the type of guy that can read like a, a 500 page medical paper in a night and like retain it. He's that kind what? of, he's that kind of smart. Um, makes me upset. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> I also want to meet him. That sounds, I mean, he sounds cool. Yeah. You know, he's a, a very fascinating, uh, individual. Um, but nonetheless, like, you know, so I, I learned a lot of this approach kind of from him. Um, is that like, you know, if you're, if you're going and there's a poster that he had that I, I, he had in college that I absolutely love. And it's still one of my favorite today that shows like millions of sheep all walking in like a giant cluster herd and they're walking off a cliff and there's all these sheep just like tumbling. It's just like the still shot of sheep as far as the eye can see and all of them falling off a cliff. And there's one black sheep and he's going the exact opposite way. And it just has a little, has a little like, you know, thought bubble, word bubble above him. And he's just like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. As he's just walking his way through as everybody goes the same direction. And this is how it happens. Like somebody comes with a breakthrough, a new novel idea, uh, and, and they find success, they find a breakthrough, then everybody copies that thinking that's the modality and they all go the same way or whether it's, you know, a, a thought, a belief people, uh, there's a herd mentality and a, and an effect on a mass consciousness that if, you know, we're not sober to and discerning to and aware of, we can fall victim to. And, and so everybody then just like in acting, Oh, well, this is how you're going to make it. This is how Leonardo did it. This is how Brad Pitt did it. It's not going to be how you do it. That's not your yeah. path. And if you follow like the formula that somebody else came up with, some other in some other person who's a pioneer that came up with something and did it that was how they achieved greatness and then everybody follows that thinking that if they do the same thing it's going to lead to greatness it's not it is the people who constantly go against the grain is the people who challenge and like and see what everybody else is doing and be like well if everyone else is doing it i'm doing the opposite because there that's not how you're going to achieve greatness like a, a greatness comes from from questioning from from pushing the limits from going outside of what the programming is and what other people have done. And so people who would say that like, Oh, if you're not a scientist or you're not a psycho, a psychiatrist or psychologist, you haven't studied this stuff that like that they, they want to discount perspective because of that. But some of the most intelligent people in the world, the most groundbreaking people in the world who've done the great dropped out of college. They said, fuck you to the system and the indoctrination Mm -hmm. of education and the archaic programming that comes along with it. And like, and they've, and they've changed the world, which is hence the black sheep thing. Like they didn't go in the system. Mm -hmm. And so that is why I, I appreciate, you know, people like you. And I actually, I take, I think people like you more seriously because for one, you have the firsthand experience. You're speaking from a place of actual experience, not theory. And and you're looking at it from a, a, a macro non-biased perspective of all things, taking the science into account, taking though also history, ancient wisdom teachings, like shamanic rituals, altered states of consciousness, the, the chanting, the dancing, everything you're, you mentioned before, and you're piecing it together where science and, and whatnot uh, are not going to take those things into account. 
even though they're signed, like they're they're backed, like there's tens of thousands of years of evidence proving them that there's something here, but they won't look at. It. They'll look at it as anecdotal and not something that they're necessarily maybe willing to like put in. Um, and so I, I appreciate uh, what you're doing uh, and and your approach with it uh, because I think that is really the secret towards finding real breakthroughs and and, and information and and understanding. So. Um, all that to say, that was really just to, to give you your flowers for, uh, for the approach. Um, uh, thanks man. Well, your brother sounds awesome. I would really like to meet him. Um, but one thing I would say is that, you know, this book, for example, couldn't be written by a doctor, uh, because they have their reputation at stake and they can't just say, they can't talk about their own experiences. It's actually unscientific for them to, talk about it in that sort of way. So they don't. So, I mean, I was watching a podcast recently with Jordan Peterson and Roland Griffiths and, uh, you know, both of them, they've definitely taken psychedelics before, but they're not able to talk about it themselves and talk about their own experiences. Every time they reference, they're always referencing the study They're They, they never talk about themselves. Um, so that gives me a little more freedom in what I'm able to say. Um, and, and I'm not tied to any institution. I don't, I'm not tied to Harvard. I'm not tied to Columbia university or something like that, that now I'm tied in with their reputation and they're staking me and I'm staking them at the same time. It's not like that at all. So what you really want out of a book on consciousness, I think is somebody who has read all these people and, and, and summed it up and then figured out a way to put it into a book format that's accessible and that doesn't make you want to blow your brains out a hundred pages in. Yeah. That's the yeah. trick. Huh? <laughs> so that's the trick. That's it's, the trick. It seems like yeah. you did it. I mean, uh, yeah. And that's, that's just, that's the, that's just, that's the shit part about academia and the science, the scientific community is just, like I said, the way that they view these compounds and these things that like they have to tow a particular line and if they're doing the subject disservice by not, unpacking the whole thing because their hands are tied because of stigma that's involved and demonization of certain things uh, as it pertains specifically to psychedelics. And therefore they're, they're, they're not even able to academically and scientifically talk about or pursue what they really want to because it's faux pas and it's, mm -hmm. it's damaging, man. It's, it's damaging to progress. Mm -hmm. So without you, you know, this is why, this is why people like you exist and why we need you. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if this book could have been written by a doctor, they'd have to write it anonymously. And so it's kind of funny because the way that it is written, it's almost like it is written from the perspective of, you know, like, like a Robin Carhart Harris type. And, uh, and, um, are you familiar with him by the way? No. Um, he's a huge name in the whole psychedelic field. Um, him and the Beckley foundation, they published that, um, that LSD photo that I was showing you there. Yeah. Uh, earlier the placebo and the lsd photo so that's just a great photo to show what we've all been saying for years which is you know certain parts of the conscious experience are heightened during a psychedelic experience and certain parts are shut down and one of the parts that's shut down is as you know the ego and how does that correlate to in the brain um he, robin carhart harris and uh dr david nutt they were you know they kind of figured out that this it, it correlates to an area of the brain we call the default mode network. I'm sure you've heard of it before. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, for anybody who hasn't heard of it, uh, basically it's the most likely candidate for the ego that we've ever seen. Um, and so back in 2001, when it was first discovered by Dr. Marcus Rakel, 
Um, you know, he had people inside an fMRI machine and he had them, you know, performing certain tasks, like look at these crosshairs, look at this, think about this. But when he didn't give them any instructions, the people in the fMRI, what did they do? You know, they started thinking about what am I going to do tomorrow? Or what, what happened yesterday? Or, uh, oh man, that meeting yesterday, I said the wrong thing and I'm probably going to get fired. So they started thinking about, they started traveling in time, mentally, mental time travel. They started extracting themselves from the present moment and thinking about the future or the past, what they're going to do tomorrow, you know, what happened last week. Um, and so they, so what he ended up discovering was this area of the brain started lighting up and they ended up calling it the default mode network because this is what the brain defaults to whenever it's not engaged in a specific task. And so this yeah. is the, the LSD brain imaging was the one you were referencing before, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'll throw and, that up. Yeah. And um, we'll throw up that photo of the default mode network. And um, it's just a good photo for people to look at and be like, okay, great. Because once you see this photo, this is basically the feeling that you're having right now. You have a feeling that you're here and, and you know, like what you're seeing is merging with what you're hearing and feeling all this gets pulled together and the default mode network when this network gets offline or obliterated and you can obliterate it through psychedelics you can obliterate it through um, meditation you know you can you can subdue it and turn it off through flow states meditation and psychedelics so of all the things that we've talked about when it comes to psychedelics you can access all these levels of consciousness through natural means too it's just not easy to get there you know, meditation, honestly, if you're trying to get there that way, it takes, Long it can time. take years. Yeah, it yeah. can take. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, That's a good thing but, to point out, though. I'm glad you did because uh, I discussed that a lot in the, the Nate Night Talks rooms on Clubhouse. Uh, we always want to give that as a disclaimer that like psychedelics are not the only modality to achieving mm -hmm. non-ordinary states. Um, it's, it's just the fucking express lane. It is the 10 years of therapy and, and, you know, 10 hours type thing. It is, it is the, the yes. autobahn of consciousness where, <laughs> if, where if you, if you're trying to, you know, you can get it through meditation, but you're going to spend 10 years in a Buddhist monastery, you know, really trying to, you know, quiet the mind. I mean, not that long, but you know, it takes, like you're saying, it takes a long, long time um, to really be able to practice these things. But there are tons of modalities towards doing it uh, naturally and endogenously relate, releasing these compounds naturally and, and achieving uh, these, these altered states. So there are ways to do it. Um, and, and people, certain people swear by both of them. Some people prefer, uh, they think it's more pure to go with the, the endogenous route and, and doing it on your own without, you know, having to ingest a psychedelic compound. And there are other people who say, say the opposite. I mean, it's to each their own. The, the desired end is what, what you're achieving in, in these not ordinary states. Yeah. And, um, just for the listeners, because um, I'm sure you know this, but uh, I wanted to give people like, you know, you said endogenous and the way that all these drugs work is is um, is kind of like a lock and key system. So, you know, the, I'll explain caffeine, for example. Do you, are you familiar with this? Yeah, I've, I think that's, this is part of a new study, right? Or fairly recent ones that are showing that they don't think... Uh you know, actually, I don't want to, I don't want to throw it out in case, in case it's something different. So you, you go, um, I'm not sure what you're about to say. So what are you about to say? Uh, recent studies that, uh, we're talking about how they don't believe that because there, there are people who are absolutely not affected by psychedelics. 
Uh, and this guy, mm-hmm. Dr. David Morehouse, who I had on, uh, on in the clubhouse room, um, I've had him on a couple times, but he was, uh, you know, 20 year army ranger commander, uh, CIA operative. And he was one of the remote viewers with uh, project Stargate and the gateway experience. So he was like one of the foremost authorities in the world on remote viewing, uh, taking your consciousness out of the body, traveling to whatever part of the known universe or to go spy on the Russians, which is what initially it was for. And this is all done at SRI, the Stanford research Institute. And, um, and he's, you know, uh, a big, uh, you know, huge, huge proponent, uh, of, of, you know, these, these non-ordinary states, I guess it's not really non-ordinary state. That's just actually remote viewing. It is remote viewing a different place in, in time and space, but he's taken psychedelics, uh, and has no effect, no effect on him whatsoever. And I was blown away by that. And I'm like, and he had a, ne- a near death experience. He was shot in the head. Um, and, uh, and Jordan, and this is what changed his life and his trajectory and why he left and inevitably found his way into this special access program at the CIA, um, was the same thing was through this, this being that he encountered, uh, during that period of time when he was, uh, you know, shot and he was out cold for, you know, whatever it was, but he, his consciousness was present. He was just out of his body. And there was another entity there that was basically telling him, you're not, you're not on the right path. You're not what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing. And, um, and that Hmm. was what changed it. But, uh, because of people like him, uh, and, and other, other people who, you know, same like people who smoke weed and say they don't, I'm not high. And you're like, what? Um, you're not, then you're not hitting it, man. (laughs) Then you're not actually inhaling, but really there are people because everybody biochemically is different. And so, because some people aren't affected at all by psychedelics, which is really strange. They were, uh, now saying that it's essentially, uh, psychedelics, which like, like just an antagonist of something that is endogenous anyway, that all it's doing is allowing, um, some form, and I'm, I'm, I'm butchering this. I'll just pull up my notes and see if I can find it. I wasn't expecting to talk about it, but it was something along those lines that ultimately, uh, they are a compound that is unlocking an endogenous thing that's happening in you anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and accelerating that or amplifying that or whatever it is, but it's not necessarily the compound itself. It is what it is unlocking, uh, in you endogenously to release or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, Basically, um, yeah, I'll explain caffeine because this this will, I think, marry it all together. Um, so if you can imagine, uh, like if you put for the listeners, if you put two fists up next to each other, these neurons, like these fists are representing two neurons trying to speak to each other. So you can say neuron A is trying to speak to neuron B. And so they communicate two ways, uh, one through um, electrical excitation. So neuron spikes and then through a chemical language we call neurotransmitters. So, um, so neuron A will send a message to neuron B, like contract your bicep. We're just going to simplify the brain to two neurons just, just to scale it up in a second. But, um, so let's say neuron A wants to tell neuron B to, you know, contract your bicep. So it sends, um, a message like acetylcholine, one of the neurotransmitters you've probably heard of will float across the synaptic gap and then go into the uh, receptor site on the next neurotransmitter. And so if that, if it takes it in, um, if it takes it in, then the message is received, contract your bicep. But that is obviously a massive oversimplification because we have 87 billion neurons in our brain, uh, Mm -hmm. not two. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so caffeine, for example, you know, everybody thinks like, oh, caffeine gives me energy, but that's not how it works at all. So, you know, you drink coffee and so caffeine enters your bloodstream, crosses the blood brain barrier. Uh, the real hero, the caffeine molecule looks so similar to an, an endogenous chemical we make called adenosine. So adenosine, uh, regulates tiredness 
as you're going about your day and you're thinking, your brain is releasing adenosine and it's starting to accumulate and then you start to get tired. And so basically that's saying, you know, I, I, I need to shut this brain down. So the way caffeine works is it comes in and it looks so similar to that adenosine molecule that it fits into the receptor site on neuron B and it blocks it. So now adenosine is trying to be sent from neuron A to neuron B, but because uh, the, the caffeine molecule is sitting inside this neuron, it blocks it. It can't, so you don't feel tired anymore. And so what happens is the brain senses panic. It starts to release uh, adrenaline, the fight or flight chemical. And the next thing you know, you start to feel more alert and wired. So increased neuron, uh, neuron firing starts to happen because the brain is like, what the hell is happening? Like something's wrong, right? And so that's where caffeine, like it's not giving you energy. It's tricking your body into releasing, you know, adrenaline in the body and noradrenaline in the brain. Uh, so that's how caffeine works in a nutshell. Um, but yeah, so it's a similar, a similar process then with, with all things. So basically, yeah, there's a, there's particular compounds being transmitted, uh, that, uh, that are all ultimately tricking, uh, endogenous things in our body or the production of other endogenous things that it's tied to, um, whether it's a, just a misrepresentation of something or it, it mimics it, it looks like it. Um, and it's, it's basically eliciting a natural response. Uh, exactly. because we don't have caffeine in our body. It's not an endogenous thing, but uh, it's it caffeine itself when it enters the body is able to produce uh, a, a stimulant like effect because of the, the process that you were just speaking of. Exactly. And so to scale that up when it comes to other drugs, like we'll just take endorphins, for example, you know, you've heard about endorphins, you work out, you get endorphins, you go for a run, you get runner's high. Now, runner's high is underpinned by mostly by anandamide, which is another um, endogenous chemical neurotransmitter that we make. But um, so let's see, how do we explain that one? Um, so morphine, the only reason morphine or opium or heroin or any of those opiates work is because we already have a receptor site that looks like, you know, opium or whatever. So um, it fits into the endorphin site. So endorphins, actually, we discovered morphine before endorphins. So that's why it's endogenous morphine, endorphins. That's the word. Mm. Um, yeah. So um, and then so like marijuana, for example, you know, tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. How do we have canna cannabinoid receptors in our brain? Everybody's wondering. We have an endocannabinoid system. Well, anandamide, which is the runner's high um, chemical, it's only because of that. So when you smoke marijuana or something like that, the THC is basically getting into the, it's, it's going the anandamide channel basically. So it's, 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 it's so similar to anandamide. That's what you're feeling. It's, it's, it's hijacking that system. So it's like this lock and key situation is what I'm, what I'm getting at. So how does that all tie in then ultimately with, uh, with, with consciousness and your, the, the overall, you know, message of the book, uh, Tie, tie that in really quick. Sure. So the way this all ties in with consciousness and everything is because um, some of the best tools for introspection and self-discovery have been locked up in the most restrictive drug category on the planet, Schedule 1, for so long. I mean, 40 years, like we've been unable to really study this stuff when it was when it was it was helping. It was helping people. It was proving to be beneficial and useful. And so. You know, if you're going to offline the study of one neurotransmitter, serotonin. So like, okay, this would be a good time to bring up 
um, that one photo where it shows LSD next to serotonin, mm-hmm. next to psilocybin, and you don't have to be a chemist to see the, the similarities there. And so because we have a serotonergic system, you know, serotonin, uh, LSD, psilocybin, and most psychedelics, they act upon the 5H2, 5-HT2A receptor site. So um, that's how they achieve their effects. But serotonin is very much tied in with perception, learning, memory. Um, and so if you're going to take away, uh, you can't study serotonin analogs, which is basically any psychedelic. We've been unable to study that for so long. So our ability to study consciousness has been hindered dramatically by the Nixon administration, by the the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Because of that, because of Timothy Leary and the overzealous uh, fear reports at the time, we have been at a disadvantage uh, for studying consciousness because the things you need to perturb it are off they're off the books we can't study it so um but now that the doors are kind of a little bit open um there's so much research out there and somebody needed to you know comb through it all and see the pattern amidst the noise and that happened to be my wife and i yeah how crazy how crazy is that schedule one man uh no medical benefits highly highly addictive both of those absolutely completely scientifically false exactly like insane you can't be chemically addicted to psychedelics it's actually like it's like biochemically impossible like in most people who take them after you have a psychedelic experience you're good you're like i'm good i'm good i'm good for a while <laughs> like that was that, that was a lot like i'm i'm, I'm good mm-hmm. like there's no like I've, I've never once after taking you know any psychedelic been like uh, when i came through you know the next day or two been like oh man let's do it again like it, it's been like <laughs> no i'm i'm good i gotta process everything that happened uh and and you know and really integrate that and that was it was intense it was a lot i mean it's it's a journey that's why they call it a journey that's why they called something the hero's journey uh mm-hmm. because it really is that i mean you're going to fucking mordor and you're trying to throw that ring in uh in mount doom and it is like an epic like that, that when you come out the other side, I mean, some of these journeys, man, feel like that. Uh, I've, I've had a psilocybin journey once that was, oh my God, one of just the pure ego death and, and, and everything therein. But it was like, it was in a, on a beach and we, I was there with like my girlfriend at the time and two of my best friends, she had never done it. And I was kind of the, uh, you know, the, the facilitator in a way. Mm-hmm. And it was uh-huh. a, a same from a same guy that I got it from before. Uh, and so I was assuming because the last batch, we all took an eighth that it was like, I was like, yeah, I probably could have had more. It was actually felt pretty mild, uh, which oh. is a, ter- a terrible assumption to make because these things, grow, <laughs> these things grow out of shit and they're, they're going to vary based on every single, you know, batch that there is. Yep. And, um, and so I, I took like four and a half grams and they all had like an eighth and, wow. uh, and that the, was their first time you said, uh, it was my girlfriend's first time. She had and, an eighth on her first time. Yeah. And, wow. uh, cause I was, I, cause I had beforehand facilitated with like six friends and like four of them had never done it. And we all had an eighth and it was like, it was a perfect amount. Uh, and you know, and for me personally, I was like, oh, I, I could have, you know, could have had a little more. I could have gone a little deeper. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, that was, uh, full ego death for everybody but one of my buddies who is like you know six three two eighty and it ended up being the perfect amount for him but for, for everybody else um 
it was it was hanging on for dear life in a 15 minute hike to the nearest bathroom like the porter pot and so you had a daunting journey in front of you whenever like a very strenuous hike too if you wanted just to go to the bathroom like people everywhere is like all the the unideal places of not having a place a safe place to kind of retreat to and it was the seven hour journey, uh, full ego death, full, like no one can save you. We all knew it. We were like, we even had a point where we just huddled together just to touch each other so that we could all try to attempt to feel grounded in reality, just trying for a second, like, but human touch meant nothing, like nothing. Like it was just, really? oh yeah, it, it was, it was, we were gone. And by, by the end of that, I mean, it was, uh, uh an insane, insane journey, um, but by the end of that, you know, when we finally kind of started coming out, uh, and were able to leave, um, you know, you felt like we just fucking stormed Normandy and like marched all the way to Berlin, like that we were like these trauma bonded soldiers who mm-hmm. just went through hell together, but came out the other side. And there was like a reward to that of like survival of like, and a bonding of like knowing that you, you, you made it through, like you made it mm-hmm. through something that. Perhaps not everybody might like because uh, the when you hit the ego death place, as you know, um, it's it's a very trying experience, and you have to have you know, uh, like I said, the ability to let go, but also just mental fortitude um, and strength and resolve to know that you're gonna you're gonna make it through. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, it felt like that to me. So that's why I like the whole idea of the hero's journey, because it is, it's like this, a perilous journey that no one can save you. Your mission is what it is. And it's to, to make it through and, and, and retain what you're, you're going to take out of it. Um, and not all are like that, obviously, like, you know, it, they vary, yeah. but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, there's, there's power in that, um, and, in, in, in what would be called the journey, but I, I, I digress. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> oh no, you're good. Um, wow. So I'm, I'm curious, like there's usually an ineffability component to ego death and everything. And I'm curious, like, like, do you mind explaining that for people? Like, I would love to hear what you would call it. I, I can obviously yeah, explain it. No, I think that's a great thing. Uh, I, I love hearing people's, uh, uh, descriptions of, like, of ego death. Yeah, like ego death. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, ego death is essentially the vaporizing of all things that make you, you, your identity in every form. So we, we all, we've made up our identity, our story. And this is, I'm sure very much the, a lot of what has gone into in, in, in Jay's book as it pertains to consciousness and the stories we tell and, and everything that's therein. Um, but we, we have a story and part of that story is that first 10 years of impressioning that, you know, was put upon us from people who raised us where we were raised, what we believe. And then, you know, people who come along later in life, either authoritative figures or influential peers who also mold that perspective of who we are. Sometimes we're told who we are and then we have our mm-hmm. belief of who we are. And, and that makes up our identity along with our gender, along with the human condition. Like all of this stuff is what makes up the ego's definition of wh- who we are and what we are and what that actually means. And when you have an ego death, all of that vaporizes everything that you have that ties you to this existence that makes you, that makes you like, uh, I am, I am Nate. I am Nate, the human man. <laughs> and like, and my story is this, 
all mm-hmm. of that fucking disappears. I am nothing. I'm Im- I'm immediately nothing, and I am everything in that moment. And it's like the the vaporizing of that ego, that story that has been told, and the realization that you aren't that. You are all things. You are all things at once, and uh, and and are experiencing you know this particular existence right now. You're occupying this carbon based meat suit, and that is. That is a current experience, and that experience comes with, you know, biological evolutionary programming of, you know, the human condition and other components that, you know, we we are faced with uh, in this in this experience, this existence. But uh, it's not you. It's ultimately mm-hmm. not you. Uh, it is ego. It is the story. And when that vaporizes and goes away, suddenly you realize I'm not that. I'm I'm much more. I'm all of these things. I'm I'm connected with this this God source or whatever whatever descriptor we want to put on it. But uh, I am I am all things and I am nothing. <laughs> it's like it's I don't know. It, it's a uh, I, that's been the way I've tried to kind of describe it to people, but it's just basically the dissolving of of story and ego and everything that we we identify with as our existence and our experience, and that suddenly uh, goes away, and everything that ties you to this reality and this experience is gone, and you are now one kind of with all things. Yes, yeah, I would, I would agree. And so the ego, as I was saying earlier, is underpinned by that default mode network, and. Um, when that gets knocked out and and like it gets knocked out during a good flow state and uh, if people aren't sure what a flow state is you know if you're downhill mountain bike riding or you're um snowboarding down down a mountain or you're doing some sort of or maybe you're writing really intensely or editing or coding or something like that really intensely and you lose track of time lose track of yourself lose track that it's like oh my god it's seven now and i've been locked in writing for the last three hours but it felt like two minutes that's a flow state. Yep. And so, I mean, we live for those moments, don't we? Yep. Yeah. And so like when it happens in at a, a music festival or it happens at a concert or some sort of, I don't know, say you're going to a political rally or something like that and you become one with the crowd, they call that communitas. And, um, and so I really love, there's this book called Stealing Fire. Have you read that by, by the way? No. Uh, it's by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel, but they there's no prerequisite for our book, but um, I would say stealing fire is a great book to read um, because they, these guys really lay out um, a general idea of like, you know, you have all these, like they're laying out the idea that flow states have the capability of healing. Um, And it's not just flow states. It's, it's these mystical type experiences, these transcendence experiences, these ego death moments, and they don't have to happen on a psychedelic. They can happen on a flow state. They can happen while you're surfing. They can happen when you're meditating. And so it's all, when you get down to it, it's all about this default mode network that's happening in your brain. And the thing about depression and anxiety is when you study the people's brains who have depression and anxiety, we see they have a hyper default mode network. It's dense, densely connected. There's too much connectivity because people that are depressed and anxious have a tendency to ruminate. You know, they think about the past and what happened and how wrong they are and how bad they are and how they shouldn't have said that thing. And then they think about the exact same thing again. So they run this pattern, boom, 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 boom. This happened. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. So it's this negative recursive feedback loops that they get engaged in. And so when this happens, what are you doing? You're disconnecting from the present moment and you're living inside your head. And so 
the default mode network, you know, turns on whenever we're engaged in, you know, um, just extracting yourself from the present moment, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, uh, mental time travel, um, just, let's see, uh, self-reflection, self-monitoring. Um, so these are, these all, these are all instances when the default mode network is turned on, but when it's turned off, what do you get bliss from a flow state? You know, time expands like an accordion. Um, you know, you having these experiences of ego death, ego loss, but what are the benefits of these things? When the self gets knocked out for a second, then other parts of the brain that maybe might be trying to tell you something are allowed to speak. Mm. Very, very, very true. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, there's this, there's something truly novel that we've contributed in this way. Um, I'd love to share with you. It's that DEMP thing I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. What's that under? And well, for once again, for those of you who are listening on podcast, uh, a lot of the images or graphs and, uh, uh, that he's discussing will be up on the, the YouTube video itself. So which, which image, the D is that the DMN? Um, actually we, we, I think we've shown that one earlier, but, uh, this one is just a verbal thing. Okay. Um, so, you know, you talk about, you know, if you talk about, um, psychedelics, people are like, well, how are they, how are they able to achieve such healing powers? And people will tell you all about, you know, well, the 5-HT2A receptor and it, you know, goes in there and, you know, does something and it's kind of like a reset. And then at the end of the end of it, you feel better somehow, but then they don't exactly know what's exactly happening. So, you know, these experiences of ego death that you're talking about, like there's, uh, there's four things that I find we find in common with most of these transcendent experiences or actually all these transcendent experiences, because it's just the four mental rites of passage that you have to go through that leads to, leads to healing. Um, and so just in quick format, it's DEMP. So D E M P dissolvability, elasticity, malleability, and possibility. So the first one we've kind of already touched on, which is dissolvability of established brain networks, like the default mode network. So, so many mental disorders are underpinned by the hyperactive default mode network or some sort of hyperactive other network, large scale network, like the central executive network or the salience network. So if people with PTSD, for example, they have hyperactive amygdala. So a hyperactive uh, salience network, emotional salience network. So their fear response is turned on way too quickly and way too loud. And so every moment, you know, I mean, did you, I know you've played many different soldiers, but did you ever have experience uh, in the military? Yeah. No, I've just been fortunate to know Navy SEALs and first recon Marine people and, and whatnot. And so got training and perspective and insight from them, uh, and for it. And then just, you know, as always, uh, used my own, my own traumas and other things, you know, because some of these things are relatable uh, and this is where empathy comes in ultimately. Right. Um, and I played, I've been playing a lot of villains for whatever the past, you know, six years or so. Mm. And, uh, and I, I attribute much of that strictly to the insights given from psychedelics and the, the compassion and empathy therein. Because once you understand fully how you work, why you think the way you think, why you do the things you do, you suddenly have a better insight to understand how other people think and do the things they do. Because we're all ultimately wired in very similar ways. We're all seeking the same type of approval, the same type of you know needs and uh fulfillment attention. and purpose attention. Yeah, exactly. And you can pretty much boil down why people do the things they do to a very few 
common things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when you do that, then suddenly, and you realize that like nobody is inherently bad or evil. This idea, you know, most people are justified who do a tr- you know horrendous things. They're justified in their own mind for what they're doing. Uh, oh they're, yeah, yeah. They're not just doing it. I'm a bad guy, so I'm doing this. Like fuck no. They they believe full heartedly that what they're doing is right. It may be completely, you know. I mean, it's usually based on some past trauma or something that's manifested in a particular, you know, coping mechanism that's not healthy. Um, But they believe what they're doing to be right. And therefore, you have to have that approach when playing, you know, a type of villain or, you know, the soldiers type thing. You know, it's uh, having that empathy and that understanding of how somebody arrives at those decisions in those places in their life anyway and understand that the only reason why we didn't is because of who raised us what happened in our life? Like it's just circumstance. It's like circumstance and programming that ultimately, you know, early on leads to a lot of this, these conditioning and these, these processes and these thought habits. And when you realize that, you know, uh, but by grace, whatever you want to call it or circumstances that you, these things didn't befall you perhaps at a young age that you are who you are today and and whatever else, or whether you believe that was, you, you chose that before coming here, whatever the case may be. Um, it, it, we're all we're all capable of the exact same things. We're all capable of tremendous uh, positive things and horrific mm-hmm. negative things. Um, both. Yeah, both of them equally. And then then you have then you're able to I think at that point embody those things because you get it because it's in you. It is in you, and you you have to understand that and and love that and access it and then and make it real in that sense. And so, um, but yeah, that was I guess a long winded explanation too. No, I never served, but. Uh, I was able to get a lot of insight, you know, from, from people who, who have in particular. Yeah. I mean, um, you brought up a good point with the whole acting thing and that actually helped me a little bit because it was, it was like, you know, that acting teacher, which is like, you know, don't judge your characters. You can't judge your characters because yeah. they're not judging themselves as a bad guy. They think themselves as a good guy. And so this goes back into this ego story and this ego narrative. I'm a doctor. I'm this. I am, you know, like I'm a good soldier. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father or whatever it happens to be. And you think that's what you are. And so you cannot see what you're not. You're, you cannot see the patterns that are maybe the antithesis of that. Mm-hmm. And the greatest example I can think of is like, you know, the movie Liar Liar Remember that. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about the scene where uh, his wife is telling Fletcher, Jim Carrey, you know, she's like, everything you do matters to Max and everything you don't do matters to Max. And he says, let me tell you something. And you know, he's about to say something awesome because it's Jim Carrey and he's a lawyer, right? And he's like, let me tell you something. Now I'm a bad father. And then he's like, wait, I mean, he can't lie to himself on that day. And so for the first time he sees his own pattern, which is, I am a bad father. And but, you know, until that moment in the movie, he wasn't seeing it. He wasn't allowing himself to see it. His ego had protected himself, had constructed a low resolution mental snapshot of who he was. And it was not including that, hey, you have a five year old kid that you're neglecting and you're breaking promises to. And that's going to affect him for the rest of his life unless he figures out a way to resolve the story and forgive you. It will affect him forever. And so the whole idea is like we aren't you can say that society programs us and you can say that like you know tv programs us and stuff but at the end of the day it is us that programs us and so we as humans get engaged in so much self-deception and so (laughs) the thing about this dissolvability component is when you have your ego dissolved through 
in flow states or through meditation or through psychedelics or something like that, then you're able to see some of the patterns that are maybe destroying you. And um, that would be the first component of, of how these things are able to catalyze massive transformations in people. I mean, we're talking about breaking 10 year addictions in a week on something. Um, you know, how is that possible? Well, this four mental rites of passage, dissolvability of established brain networks. Once the de default mode network gets um, dissolved, that's when the downloads start to come. Um, Mark Hayden, the director of MAPS in Canada, he had a great line, which is psychedelics increase the permeability between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Would that. you agree? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And so, you know, and it, this, this sort of thing is correlated to a certain extent on dose, you know, like mushrooms are a very different animal when it's two grams versus five versus 10, <laughs> you know, it's completely different. Like you will not believe how different it could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so if you can imagine that like, there's like these floodgates of sensory information and floodgates that, that separate the conscious from the unconscious, um, you know, they might open a little bit on a flow state. They might open a lot more on a psychedelic. They might, um, they can get full blown open. And, uh, and at that point, there is no self, there is no ego, you are stuck in the subconscious land. Um, and um, that in itself is a trip. Um, but yeah, should we move on to the next one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep it going. Okay, so that was D. Now we're gonna go to E. So elasticity. So the elasticity of time, one thing if you study any transcendent experiences that time starts to dilate, uh, your experience of time can stretch or shrink. We've all, I mean, you've had a near-death experience. I've had a near-death near experience, maybe a car wreck. Did, did, did time slow down for you? Oh, for sure. It time, did? Time, well, time meant nothing. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, it, it, there, it, was, it wasn't even present. Uh, you know, it's not even, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it, it is an illusion to us in, you know, in, in the three-dimensional space. I mean, four-dimensional space, I guess, if you're counting time. Um, and we, we, I think most people have experienced that at some point. Uh, whether yeah. it is even to be in the flow state, like you said, where, where time, it's merely an illusion, like, cause it can go incredibly fast or incredibly slow. So what does that mean about it? You know, the same amount of time is passing, but your perception of it, uh, is, is completely different. And mm -hmm. I had this, uh, two weekends ago, I did another three day aboga journey. Um, once again, as a, as a modality to kicking a bad habit developed over, uh, mm. over the, the quarantine, um, cheers to you for that, by the way. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And the beauty of, you know, a boga, uh, is that, uh, and I, that was originally why I went to go do my first two ceremonies in, in Costa Rica a couple of years ago, um, was to, uh, to kick, uh, a tramadol at the time. And, oh, wow. uh, which, which is a very difficult one because you have the opioid component and the SSRI component, um, both of which have very bad withdrawals. And the beauty of a boga is, you know, you can, you can be an active heroin addict and, and go to an ibogaine clinic or do an actual boga ceremony. And by the end of it, you have zero withdrawals, zero desire to touch it again, which is absolutely insane because most people, you know, can even die from the withdrawals of heroin if they're, if they're really deep into it, like the withdrawals coming down from those things are really violent and really difficult and which keeps a lot of people from actually quitting. But, um, I was uh, on a little three day journey, uh, 
couple weeks ago, which was not ideal. I prefer obviously to be in nature with, you know, a shaman, whatever, but didn't have that luxury. So I, it was just, just me. Uh, my girlfriend is working all weekend. And so I just had the, uh, had the, the place to myself and, mm-hmm. uh, and went on this journey. And there was so many times where I was, you know, talking to a buddy at one point and, and whatever else where I had a full story play out um, and that's the thing with a boga. A boga basically gives you, I, I describe it as like a slideshow of life. Like a boga is very introspective where, you know, things like ayahuasca, or the tryptamine families is very much out, very much out into the universe is taking you outside of you. Uh, a boga is very much all inside. It's internal. And, um, and I was walking and I would have these, these moments where I was talking to him and I said one word while descri- I don't remember what the fuck I was talking about. But I said one word and then saw one person in the area I was walking. And I came up with this whole story, like this slideshow movie where a whole scenario played out, like a thought process that you would have thought would have taken like an hour, like a story that was told to me that I I made up this whole scenario of as a doomsday kind of thing. It's a red dawn scenario is very interesting. Um, that, that kind of uh, that played out for me in immense detail. And it happened within three seconds of me saying one word to really? him and then this happening. And then all of this running through my mind and I had maybe taken five steps because I was walking while I was talking to him on the phone. And, and suddenly I was back and I was like, Whoa, he's like, what? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, a lot just happened. Like, I was like, a lot, a, a lot just happened. And I tried to even recap it for him. And the recap took like five minutes and I was missing so much of the detail, but all of right? it happened within split second, like a couple seconds, this whole fucking long two hour movie played out of a scenario that came up in my mind, like with visuals and everything. And I was there and then I was back here walking, you know, three steps down from where I was. And, uh, and it was just time at nothing in that place, mm-hmm. in that movie I was watching, like that, that may have well been a dream, which is a whole other thing that's, you know, I'm sure you mm-hmm. can touch on like the, the, the dream component to things. And it was just that I was like, dude, time means nothing, man. <laughs> That's all I said to him. I was like, it doesn't mean anything. Like, what just But it happened? felt so profound when you said it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, in the moment, I was fucking Gandhi. But like, uh, yeah. <laughs> now trying to, you know, recap it, it's never the no, same. You, but uh, I think that's a great job. Like, I mean, you're saying like so much happened within three seconds of time. And it was just, I mean, if anything, doesn't that showcase how powerful the mind is? Like, you're like, wow, it's capable of all those stories within that short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And retained and coherent. Like that's yeah. how fast is the fucking brain? Talk about the speed of light. Like that's nothing compared to to what just transpired in there. Like uh, the neurological, you know, connections and, and receptors and how quickly things fire. Like we, we are capable of so, so much more, so much more. And I think these type of experiences sometimes en- enlighten us a little bit too to that oh yeah no you 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 did a good thing man because that was like uh that goes into the next little component which is m which is the malleability of the internal experience so uh the internal experience so you have this kind of like dream that's happening in your head inside the theater of consciousness and so it's able to be changed so much by what you think how how are you like what is your state of mind right Like, how are you feeling? Are you fearful? Are you not? And so the benefit of psychedelics is the dissolvability, the elasticity of time, 
but then the malleability of the internal experience. So by being shown what you got to see, didn't that show you how much your own mind is capable of altering reality? And I have a study to back this up too. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. What's, what's the yeah. study? Uh, so this is, it's something that people can look up right now if they want to, and, and it will still work even after I tell it to them. Um, so it's called the McGurk effect. Have you heard of that? Mm. Okay. So the McGurk effect is, is basically it's, it's like a guy in a video and he's just saying, fa, fa, or so he's, I'm sorry. He's saying, ba, 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 ba over and over. Just, just a guy saying, ba, ba, ba over and over. So you watch the video you see him say, buh, you hear him say, buh, that's the control. Okay. So now we, now we take the same video, but we layer a different video on top of it. So it's the same audio. He's still saying, buh, but now the guy is saying, fuh, fuh, fuh. So it's the same audio saying, buh, buh, mm-hmm. buh, but all the video is, is of him saying, fuh. Mm-hmm. So the audio is, buh, it's the video of him saying, fuh. And what happens is your mind makes you see and hear fa because there's more information so, coming or, in. Or that makes you see fa or ba. So in reality, um, it's the audio track is is still ba. It hasn't changed yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The video track is what's changed. But because your eyes are registering that the F, mm-hmm. you know, the F sound, mm-hmm. it's saying, hey, the brain is basically saying, Oh, he must be saying fa, even though the ears are saying no, he's saying ba. The eyes are saying no, he's saying fa, and then you hear fa. You will mm-hmm. hear it. Mm-hmm. But here's the kicker: now close your eyes and you'll hear ba. Open them back up, and once you register the f component, it'll be fa again. So what that means is the brain doesn't trust the ears as much as it trusts the eyes. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Mm. So it's editing reality right in front of your eyes. And I got another experiment that'll edit reality right in front of your eyes. Um, but uh, it's just a good it's just a good way for people to be like, okay, so this is just a small example of how the brain edits reality on a daily basis. It, it doesn't, you know, the moment that you think now is, that's not now. That's 500 milliseconds ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're living in the past. The, it, for the brain to produce this experience that you're having, you... The Nate that I'm talking to is actually four to 500 milliseconds in the past. Mm. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, there's a lot of these videos. I'm sure you've seen them of like, have gone viral for the past few years where somebody is saying like they're playing a particular sound and they're like, either you're going to hear this word or you're going to, some people are going to hear this word. Some people are going to hear that word. And he, people hear different words when uh, this, I don't know, almost like a, you don't really know what is being said. They'll play it for you and you don't the audio. It's not really, you don't know what the word is. It's not, it's not anything. And then they tell you what the word is uh, or whatever. And then suddenly your brain either hears one of two. I might be butchering that study, but I've, I've seen these, these things um, a number of times in a similar, similar type of study showing that. Uh, and this actually kind of leads me to wonder then. So you sent a number of, uh, of assets from the book um, and some of these these pictures that have to do with the illusions, right? Yeah. This kind of ties into that. Is there any of those you want to reference as it pertains to this? Because um, I can put them up on the YouTube video so people can actually see what these illustrations are. Um, that references this, what we're talking about right now? Yeah. Does the um, shadow, shadow one do it or no? I guess that that's all perception versus there's no audio component, but or is it tie I think in? the Necker Cube is a great example. 
Okay. So if you, and for those that are listening, um, the Necker cube is, is, is basically if you were going to draw a cube on a two dimensional sheet of paper, that's the Necker cube. It's, 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 it's the only way to draw a cube on um, a two dimensional sheet of paper. Cause a cube is obviously three dimensions. So, um, the Necker cube though, if you stare at it for like five seconds, it's going to alternate between the frontmost square being the front of the cube and then the backmost square being the front of the cube. The, the way that it's drawn, it's rather ambiguous. So the brain doesn't just choose one orientation and stick to its guns. It alternates between the two that are possible every few seconds. So that's the Necker cube. And so the idea, the real idea behind the Necker cube that I think is worth telling is this is what happens when you take a three-dimensional object and, and represent it on a two-dimensional sheet of paper. Okay. So there's ambiguity there. And so I can create a Necker cube with 12 strokes of a pen. That's all it takes. 12 strokes of a pen. So you got to imagine now your life story with all its millions and millions and millions of variables. And the question is, did I make the right interpretation? Because if, if it only takes 12 strokes of a pen to make an ambiguous cube, like how many interactions have we had that we didn't make the right interpretation. If the malleability of the internal experience is one of those rites of passage that teaches you anything, it's that thought has a way of distorting reality. And so you have this view of what happened and what went down in every single interaction of your life. But, you know, if the Necker cube teaches me anything, it's like, have a little humility. Like, this is how easy it is to trick the brain into believing it's face this way or face this way. Are you really going to say that you nailed it in every interaction that you didn't make the wrong, you didn't jump to the wrong conclusion and look at someone's face and interpret it the wrong way? Because, you know, I can't read your mind. What I do is I look at you and I, and I watch your behavior and I watch the way you hold your body and the way you move your mouth and smile and eyes and all that stuff. And then I'm able to generate a story which is called theory of mind about what I think you're thinking. And so this is an ability that unpacks as we get older is this ability to read other read other people's minds in a way um and it's called theory of mind and so yeah that's a that's a good one with the necker cube yeah all right keep it going so malleability of the internal experience that's m d e m and then p possibility the possibility space um so this one it's almost like a physical place so this is the four mental rites of passage and it's almost like a physical place that you go to or ascend to or descend to whatever you want to call it in your mind and um it's at this place it's only possible to get to after your ego has been knocked out so um when we were talking about time one thing i did not mention is uh, transient hypofrontality uh the prefrontal cortex is where we do a lot of our planning and um you know like uh, what we're going to do um, when you're a teenager, you're operating more out of uh, you're operating more out of your amygdala. Then as we get older, the prefrontal cortex is what give us gives us the space to step back from the immediacy of the experience and step back from what what's happening and, and think about things logically and plan what's going to happen. And so, you know, the time is also calculated inside the prefrontal cortex and other spots in the brain as well. But when you knock this out, and this is, is one of the things that gets knocked out under psychedelics or flow states or uh, meditation, uh, transient hyperfrontality, um, that's what happens. Your ability to calculate time goes away. Your ability to calculate your sense of self, it's a calculation. Your ego, your picture of yourself is a calculation. And so that gets offlined 
And that's when, and when all that stuff gets offline, that's when you drop into the possibility space. And I'm curious if that, it, did, have you experienced anything that sounds like the possibility space or? Oh just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, every psych, I mean, I feel like every psychedelic uh, experience and, and during periods of time in life where I really went deep into meditation for like, you know, six months, a year, like every day, uh, doing it, uh, you eventually slip kind of into that, that state, um, very quickly. And you, you realize the downloads and the information that you are now able to receive that you can't in your day to day. Like it's blocked out by everything that you were saying, like it, the, that communication yep. network is not there. Um, you're, you're not able to access it. It's being drowned out by, by everything else that the ego is, is feeding it. Um, or just, you know, basic survival, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and same, you know, when you talk about flow state, like my, my real flow state, uh, one of my best flow states is travel. And which is one of the big mm. downloads I got from, you know, that first, uh, Boga, uh, experience was that, uh, you know, you're, I was expecting some deep, profound things, of you know, maybe some past traumas, something that maybe hadn't been uncovered in all the other shadow work and psychedelic journeys that I'd done. And I'm like, maybe there's just something else that's led me to like, have this, you know, habitual cycle of, uh, of abuse of things where I'd, you know, be on something for a while, then off for like, you know, six months or a year and then go back on. It was just like this, this cycle of things. And I'm like, I must be trying to mask something or run from something. And, uh, and then the, the messages, the downloads that came from it, once all of that was quiet and silenced and I was in that state and all that conversation, it was so simple. It was so basic. It was just like, you're not doing the shit you're supposed to be doing. Like you're not doing the things that put you in that flow state that make you happy. Like you stopped working out. Working out has always made you happy. Being physically fit, mm-hmm has made you happy. This has been an outlet for you for, you know, depression and for, you know, uh, just, you know, feeling good about yourself. Um, same with, you know, the diet I was consuming, my sleeping habits. And one of the biggest things was like in travel, you stop traveling. I used to backpack, like, you know, and travel the world all the time when I was younger, cause my dad was a pilot. So I had these, his flight benefits. But once I graduated, uh, once I graduated college, I lost all of them and then the real world hit. And then, you know, the starving actor syndrome and everything that, you know, came along with it. I was like, oh, I had, had every excuse for why I couldn't do it. And I was depriving myself of one of my greatest joys and peaceful experiences that I had is when I just strap on a backpack and leave for a month and go travel the world. And when I'm in that state, time passes fast. Like I am constantly present. I am, I'm appreciating every moment, every culture, every experience. I'm the best version of myself. I, and I come back recharged and happy, like, and, and just always just at peace. I don't need anything. I don't need some, you know, self-medication, like, uh, you know, to, to numb out the, 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 I feel like the lack of control in this industry is one of the things that's plagued me the most is you're at the mercy of your agents or your manager to get you, you know, auditions because without them, you know, you, you can't do it. So you're here, you're hungry, you're trying to work. And so unless you're actually making, you know, your own project, which is what you inevitably did, you're, you're powerless. And that's a shit feeling, mm-hmm. especially for p- people who are wired, uh, and, in a, a very proactive kind of, uh, take control kind of manner when you don't have that power and you're unable to really dictate it. Um, you can get really depressed. And so it was, uh, it's probably one of my most pure flow states that I, I can be in is, is in that state of like travel. And, and at that point, yeah, like time, time changes for me. Uh, I'm at peace. I'm present. I'm, I'm appreciating every moment because I'm soaking up the experience and truly living in it. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, dude. I mean, traveling itself is 
a non-ordinary state of consciousness, really, because you're you're taking yourself out of your normal element and uh, you're experiencing awe by going over overseas and seeing like La Sagradas Familias, like that humongous church that's taken 200 something years to build. And you're like, I can't even believe that we were able to do this. Mm -hmm. Like we were able to con like, this is what we're capable of over generations. Mm -hmm. I mean, us being able to rally together, I just can't even believe it. Like a guy, like somehow got generations of people to work towards an idea and they weren't enslaved this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, even, even that's a misconception. I mean, that's now, uh, I mean, despite academia and Egyptologists trying to, you know, say it's not true, but uh, the pyramids weren't built by slaves. Like the, the, the pure and Graham Hancock's one of my, you know, and John Anthony West are two of my you know favorite people as it pertains to the truth about Egypt and the real history and how old our civilization really is. And the, you know, the species with amnesia and not realizing these things. But I think, you know, travel from exactly what you said is one of the ultimate consciousness expansion mechanisms there are because mm -hmm. it does break down all of these things, preconceived notions too about culture. Like when I backpacked the middle East, you know, a year or two ago uh, and everyone's like, Oh, that's so dangerous. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, no, no, it's not. You bought into the media, you bought into programming, like people by and large are good and they all want the same thing. And yeah, there's, you know, shit people everywhere in every country and every culture, like, and there are places you shouldn't go. And there are places in America that I won't go. Uh, and, and that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be safe. And it's the same anywhere, but to like blanket, you know, entire countries or groups of people with this, it's just, it's, it's wrong. It's ignorance. And then you go and then suddenly like you, you experience these cultures and these places and you see these things, you see the history, you see, uh, you know, the pyramids or, you know, Petra or, any any megalithic monolithic site that exists and you're like man like we are so much more and like there's so much more to our our experience on this planet and this existence that we don't even we can't even replicate this today like and and we it's just it changes everything and then you meet people and you hear their perspectives from where they were raised and what they believe to be real and suddenly you just realize that ultimately everything that you are trained to believe is merely programming it's perspective it's a story it doesn't mean it's right it just means it's your reality that you've convinced yourself is what's real but that's not yeah. reality. That's that's not greater reality. Like greater reality is all the things happening at once, all the possibilities, the infinite things that could happen. But we choose to reinforce, uh, you know, things we believe to be real, true, and possible, and that makes up then our reality. And then seeing these other realities shifts that for us and makes us really question the reality we've convinced ourselves to be true. And I think ultimately, you know, is is one of the the greatest consciousness. Uh, expansion things that uh, that that we can do mm-hmm yeah and for those who don't like psychedelics yeah i mean do it like that's i mean this is what we're talking about and that's why i really like the book stealing fire um that i was mentioning earlier is because they kind of like give you the roadmap of like you know these all these states we're talking about these non-ordinary states of consciousness they're all exist on a spectrum and so at the extreme end you have the transcendent experience and then maybe maybe birth over here and then, but all in between, you know, there's so many different shades, like a flow state is just like a mild form of like the elasticity of time teaches you something about the present moment and how much we disengage from the now and meditation teaches you that too. But, um, you know, a transcendent experience is like all of the, it's like a flow state 
and meditation, all that wrapped up into one. So it's like, it's the pinnacle experience that you could possibly have. And when you get it, everything changes. I mean, it's like, you were talking about like with the, with the Ibaga, I think it's like some of these revelations you had, like, aren't, it's like, they sound so simple when you tell them to other people, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. They're profound. Yeah. Prof- profoundly it, simple. <laughs> they're profoundly simple, but what is causing us to like, not have these revelations in everyday life. I would say it's the ego. The mm-hmm. ego is always the judge. The ego is the one that puts up the wall between you and other. It 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 makes the line between self and other real for you. And um yeah, so I mean that's what if you think about like what causes me to not be empathetic towards this person or compassionate towards this person, it's because I have judged myself to be separate. I have judged i have injected thought i have injected a cutting mechanism which is thought into the picture which is snipping me off from reality and making me feel like an isolated thing when that's not the case at all as you know mm-hmm. yeah so um and re redefine really quick for the audience that that acronym again so they know all four of the points so yeah the four mental rites of passage that uh psychedelics give you are DEMP, D-E-M-P, so dissolvability of established brain networks, elasticity of time, the malleability of the internal experience, and the possibility space. So the possibility space I didn't really go into. You you went into it, um, but I, I would say... What was it? Maybe clarify that then for them. Okay. So the possibility space, um, you could... Some people, when they reach it, they feel like they've reached heaven. Some people, if that's not their language game, they feel like they've attained nirvana. Um, I'll, I'll give it to you from a just neutral spot. I think the possibility space is, is you have two hemispheres in your brain and they both work together to give you this experience. Now, these two hemispheres, they are both independently conscious to some extent and um, they don't agree on reality at all. They perceive reality in very different ways. And uh, there's an amazing book called The Master and His Emissary by Dr. Ian McGilchrist, where he lays out all the differences between them and anything that has been, anything that people have ingested, like in the 70s or 80s, mostly regarding the right hemisphere and left hemisphere and how they're different is, has been debunked. But he really laid out, and it's the best theory that's out there on why we have a divided brain. And the reason I bring this up is because we don't feel like we're in two separate realities, but according to our brains, we are. Because you basically have two brains in our head. They perceive the world in different ways. They don't agree on what reality is. And so, but at a level below consciousness, there's some sort of meta control center that brings these two together, these two perspectives together. And they get, it gives you this experience that we're having, which is 500 milliseconds behind the moment. Now, the possibility space to me is once you've offlined the default mode network, that's out, your ego's gone. Where is the eye of you? The eye of you is somehow in this meta control center. And so it's, it's, it's like a pre-conscious state. And so I say pre-conscious because it's like all things are possible. And for me, it feels like I've descended inside my brain and I'm down up and I'm, and I'm, I'm watching all the possibilities that are now possible because I no longer have an ego narrative that is pigeonholing me into a certain way of life in a certain direction and a certain belief system and a certain value hierarchy. And so once all that's out, then it's just pure possibility. And these two hemispheres are, are communicating to each other. And that's where the revelations happen because, you know, I mean, this is a really broad, really broad way to think about it. 
but the left hemisphere in like 90% of people, I think it might be 95, 95% of people is the hemisphere that has language. So we could just conceptually say that the left hemisphere is mostly the thinking hemisphere, okay? It's it's the one that produces serial, logical, you know, one thing after another type thoughts. Now the other hemisphere, the right hemisphere, it's engaged in everything we do as well, but it's more about feelings. It's a little bit better with feelings and the regulation of all that. And um, where was I going with this? <laughs> oh yeah, the possibility space, right? <laughs> yeah, possibility space. So yeah, uh, so basically you have a thinking mind and you have a feeling mind and they don't always see eye to eye. And so you have this story in your head and you think you, you should be doing this one thing, but when that mind gets knocked out and you're able to bridge the gap between the world of thoughts and the world of feelings, that's when the revelations happen. That's when you have those aha moments or those moments where you go, ah, I am pushing this person away because I'm so scared of getting hurt, mm. you know, or, or I'm smoking cigarettes because I hate myself or I I'm going to stop smoking cigarettes because they're bad for me. People had these revelations like that. Like, you know, you ask them like, what got you to stop smoking? Well, I just finally realized that it was killing me and it was disgusting. It's like, well, you hadn't realized that in the 20 years you'd been smoking before? Yeah. No, because my thinking mind wasn't allowing me to. Finally, once that got offline, it was the two brains saying, they're finally communicating and saying, look, this is this is not what you want. Like, you, you should be traveling. You should be working out. You should be doing the things you love to do. That's why you're depressed. That's why you're not, you know, performing your best is because you're not treating yourself like you matter anymore. And so that's what happens inside the possibility spaces. You're exposed to possibility instead of the narrow viewpoint that you had been stuck in previously when the ego was, you know, reigning. Yeah, it is a fucking tyrant. Yeah. <laughs> so does this tie in at all to uh, something you touched on um, uh, when we spoke yesterday, uh, the, the selves? Mm, um, yeah. Does this tie into that at all, or is that something you want to uh, to touch on? I know we're we're at nearly two and a half hours here, um, so basically, if, as far as the format goes, I may have to cut this into two parts because. Oh, okay. The the way I mean, it's just how much it lets me upload. Um, but uh, I do want to make sure that we're hitting some of the, the the real key points, and I'm loving this conversation, man. I could honestly just oh. talk for freaking hours and hours about this because I think it's ultimately the most important thing there is. I mean, consciousness is everything. It is, as you said, it's the real final frontier. It's not space. It's consciousness. And understanding that, we, we unlock true reality and true purpose and, uh, and true happiness uh, if, we, if we can learn to master this and understand what, what this experience really is. Um, and that we are the, the gods, the creators of our, of our own experience and, and reality. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, does the, uh, does the, the selves uh, diagram uh, that you had, does that tie into this? Um, in a way it does, we could do that, or I guess we'd have to choose if you want to do, I could read you the page of the visual thing. It would be reading one page or, and then we could go into those illusions, or if you'd rather, I could do the selves thing, but I guess we could do both. So we do both do the, do, read the page thing. And then I can, uh, this is for the illusions and I'll post the illusions that he's, he's referencing, um, uh, on the YouTube video so you can see them. Okay. So this would be just kind of um, one of the chapters. It's called Sensory Awareness. It's trying to explain a little bit about vision. Vision is broken up into many different chapters, and I find it would be 
crazy to spend like 10 chapters in a row explaining vision. So I parcel it out um, as we go. But um, here we go. So every single second, it's estimated that 11 million bits of information come streaming into your brain through all of your sense organs. All that information gets channeled by your subconscious and then pared down to around 200 bits for your experiencing self to perceive and attend to. Now, at this stage, you might be wondering how it's even possible to pare down and process that much data into a workable user interface like Consciousness 5.0. And the answer is the brain takes shortcuts, lots of them. So uh, instead of saying baseline wakeful conscious state a million times, I just call it Consciousness 5.0 or abbreviate to CS5. It's just a quicker way to say this is the conscious state that you have when you wake up and you haven't had coffee and you haven't had a cigarette and you haven't had wine and you haven't had anything. It's just your normal baseline wakeful conscious state. That's consciousness 5.0. So take vision, for example. To explain the complexities of vision, the first thing we really need to do is gloss over how digital cameras work. And we can accomplish this by pretending we were trying to live stream our favorite college professor giving a lecture. So there they are, standing in the front of the auditorium, lecturing about Eastern philosophy or whatever, while you're off somewhere towards the back, standing next to your tripod. Mounted on top, a jet black DSLR camera that has an HDMI cable running to a laptop that's connected to the internet. In this scenario, light's flowing into the camera's lens. It's hitting an image sensor back where the film strip used to be, whereupon the light gets converted by the camera's computer into millions of tiny picture elements, AKA pixels, which then get assigned a certain light value, which then get coded into a distinct pattern of ones and zeros, AKA binary. After that, this binary information then travels out the camera through the HDMI cable and into the laptop it's connected to. Upon arrival, these ones and zeros then travel into the computer's CPU where it gets translated and reassembled back into video by some fancy computer software so it can be ultimately displayed on the screen of your laptop. Now, if that sounds like a clunky flow of information, then buckle up because the way our brains reconstruct reality, keyword being reconstruct, is far more complex. We'll be rounding out the picture of how vision works over the course of our time here, but for now, it'll suffice to say that we don't see like our intuition tells us we do. I realize vision feels like you just open your eyes and that's reality, but that just isn't the case. Far from it, actually, because the truth is we don't see with our eyes, we see with our brain. We see with our internal model. That laptop we just imagined, it never sees the lecture, not directly, because the laptop only ever receives zeros and ones. The laptop then uses those zeros and ones to reconstruct the digitized bits of data into something useful using the appropriate software. And the same is true with our brains, only it isn't ones and zeros, it's neuron spikes. When light first comes into our eyes, it hits the back of our retinas, where it's broken down into a series of neuroelectrical impulses at the eye. It's broken down at the eye. It's then sent back along some cables, aka nerves, to the visual processing center of the brain, where it is reconstructed and stitched into a three-dimensional representation of reality that, hap Oops, that you can then perceive. With digital cameras, the fidelity in which this reconstruction happens is pretty spot on. Despite some pixelation here and there, the camera will essentially capture as much of reality as its tech allows. A better image sensor equates to more pixels. More pixels equates to a higher resolution photo, which ultimately amounts to a higher fidelity representation of reality. But with brains, we employ a lot of guesswork, a great deal of filling in the gaps, um, and a ton of prediction based on expectation. Motion, edges, color, contour, shapes, shadows, objects. These are all internal processes that are going on inside your head right now. 
More precisely, there are teams of neurons whose sole purpose it is to track and identify objects. Just there are teams of neurons whose sole job it is to detect edges. Just like that flip book we used to play with as kids, your brain paints on motion when it believes to be their motion. And sometimes it paints on shadows when it thinks there ought to be some. If we actually perceive the world the way our common sense says we do, then optical illusions wouldn't work at all. Change blindness wouldn't be a thing and magicians would be out of a job. So, yeah. So if you look at that checker shadow illusion, like right now, um, that's a good, that's a good way to say like, you know, as you can see, it's uh, a checker for those who can't see there's a checkerboard and there's this uh, cylinder that's in the middle and it's casting a shadow and it's casting a shadow over the white and black, you know, checkerboard spots. And so because your brain is programmed to understand what shadows are and to, it's programmed to understand that light comes from above, um, it expects that these, that one of these squares, you know, they're labeled A and B, one of these squares is going to look different. And it actually isn't different. And so, you know, you can show that next image, which would show that they're actually the same color, but your brain makes it look like it's a different color because it expects, it expects that. And so your, this is just another example. And the book is full, filled with them in the way that thought distorts reality. And so you build up enough of these illusions and you start to understand how malleable the internal experience really is. And so if you look at that, that other illusion, the motion one, anybody's seen this, it's mm. like a bunch of, I don't know. How, how would you describe that for somebody who's never seen like it? Fractal almost patterns in a way like um, it's psychedelic in nature, but like a repeating pattern over and over. Yeah. And uh, if you look at it, obviously it's not moving, but your brain thinks it is because it's so conf- it's there's so much information. It paints on the motion that I'm talking about. And um, I mean, obviously, and this goes back to movies, too. I mean, you know, sitting in a theater, you're not seeing motion. You're seeing 24 frames projected on a screen every second. And that, in your mind, creates motion. But there's no motion. You're, you're creating it. Yeah. 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 What, what, so, what are any of the others? Extinction illusion? Uh, yeah. Are there any of these? The Ninio's Extinction Illusion. So this one is another one where it's like it's a bunch of crosshatched and there's there's 12 dots featured. But if you look at it, you can't see more than four. Most people can't see more than four dots at once. So the point that I bring up in regards to the Ninio's Extinction Illusion is consciousness lets you feel like you have more access to information. It lets you feel like if you're reading, you know, like I could just... I could just stop right now, close my eyes and keep reading because I feel like I'm taking in way more information than I am. But that's the dream of consciousness. And so Ninio's Extinction Illusion is, is so awesome because there's 12 dots there, but you can't, even see, you can't even see five of them. And so you can stare at it all day you want. You can try to memorize where they are. But every time you shift your eyes, it's, there's so much data. You only see such a tiny little bit because the way that our, you know about the fovea centralis, I'm sure. Oh, no. Um, so, you know, each, each one of our eyes is kind of like an eye camera. And so there is a place inside the eye called the fovea centralis where cone concentration is at its highest. So that's like your, the highest image sensor that you have is in that cone. And so we see with that little cone, that's the, it's, it's so tiny too. And, um, and you have a humongous blind spot in your eye and, and you never see it. Like there's two blind spots in your eye right now. And I mean, David Eagleman has a great line. He's like, imagine you're outside and you're, you're looking up at the sky, uh, up at the night sky and there's a moon there. And uh, he's like, now that's how, that's how big your blind spot is. Like 
it's humongous. It's, it's, so anyway, your brain is consciously, uh, it's, it's consistently filling in, filling in the gaps of what you can't see with what it thinks is there. And so when it comes to Ninio's extinction illusion, it thinks there's only four dots because it, your phobia is so small, it can only capture a tiny bit of actual reality and what's on the periphery of your vision. Your brain's just like, I don't know. I'm going to say it's just more crosshatch pattern. And that's exactly what you see. You know? Yeah, that's wild. I was looking at that. I could, <laughs> I could see the four and then like at points... I could see the four in the middle and then out of my peripheral vaguely, I could see some at the top, but then I would have to really try. Otherwise like they all just disappear. It's strictly, yeah. it's strictly just those, those ones, but I can never actually, I couldn't focus on more than just the, the four like at a time, like, uh, otherwise, yeah, that that's wild. Yeah. So it just goes to show you how small, um, you know, like, I mean, we feel like we're taking in our information at like 4k resolution or something like that, but in actuality, it's more like 1080p and that's only at the center center bullseye of your vision. So that's how you're able to read. Like you can only read a couple words before you have to move your eyes. And then you can capture a couple more words before you have to move your eyes again. And your eyes are moving three times a second. What's flicker effect? Oh, the flicker effect. Hmm. Or we don't need to go into that one if it's not uh, as much of a tie-in of what. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll pass on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that's fine. Uh, fragmented uh, vision. Oh. Yeah, this one's really cool. Okay, so you would think, like most people, just assume the common sense folk intuition that we open our eyes and that's reality. And so one of the ways to disprove that is 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 okay. In India, there's more blind people than anywhere else in the world. It's completely overrepresented. And it's so preventable because these kids are born with congenital cataracts. So they're born with these cataracts in their eyes. And then they don't have access to doctors. So they just live with it. So they can't see anything. And so some of these kids, you know, like there's this doctor, Pawan Sinha. And uh, so he went over there and he started giving these kids the gift of sight back. An amazing, amazing humanitarian guy. And he was doing all this for free. And, but, you know, the literature was pretty strong. It was like after the age of seven, if you haven't learned to see, you'll never learn how to see. And so he was the first one to, you know, do an operation like this on an 18 year old and cut off their cataracts. And you would think, well, now they can just see, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you think that? Yeah, you'd assume. You'd assume. But he'll never be able to see like you and I see, sadly, because we have to learn to see seeing is so much more complex than anyone has ever imagined. And so, you know, like one of these fragmented pictures, it's a circle and then there's a square that, um, that it like transects it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so if you show that to this, like this kid who got this operation and it say, how many objects are here? He'd say, he'd say three. He, he, he couldn't understand. He, he, like what seems so simple, there's two mm. objects there. It's a circle and a square. Mm. He can't understand it. So the next one is like, there's a ball and it's casting a shadow. And, uh, and so like, if you asked him how many objects are there, he'd say two. He doesn't understand that a ball casts shadow yet. So he, like, he's, he's learning this thing, but like, sadly, even if the brain is deprived of the ability to see for the first few months of its life, three months, that's it you'll there will always be deficiencies in the visual system that no amount of training can ever correct so vision is an active process taking place inside your head and this comes from dr david eagleman but um 
95% of what you're seeing right now is internal generated imagery and 5% of that is retinal data. That's wild. That just goes to prove once again. And that's, it's funny, uh, the, uh, the bits of information thing that goes back mm. to, uh, I think the first time I ever came in contact with that was, was within the, the, what the bleep do we know? <laughs> Which is hilarious. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of leaps in that, but you know, there's also a lot of, you know, facts, uh, as far as certain things within quantum physics go, um, and how particles operate. But, um, that was the first time I'd heard, I think they said it was like 20, 22 billion bits of information or something. And we could process 2000 of them per second. Uh, and that makes up our reality. Um, and you're saying it's 11 million and it's 200 bits out of that 11 million that we're processing that make up our reality. So like the real reality, either way, whatever, whatever you want to take it as, as far as how big that is, but for the sake of this, we'll just say, you know, the 11 million, um, that's real reality. That's all things, mm. all possibilities, all things happen at once. Your reality, what you believe to be real is merely the 200 that you hone in on that you're processing, which are you're isolating because of conditioning. You're isolating because of what you've been programmed to believe to be real, true and possible and, uh, and affirming of that, that paradigm, that reality. And so you isolate those 2000 bits as being like the, the important thing that make up your, your belief system and your reality. That doesn't mean that all the other things aren't happening, uh, and, and taking place like in the world. Uh, but that, but it does to you, <laughs> it, it, it does to the individual, um, to each of us. And so it's a very important thing to remember that those things we focus on, which we can change, you know, at any time, uh, it takes work, but, uh, it, it can be done. Um, but that, that is making up what we believe to be real and true, but that's not what's real and true. That's just what's real and true to us. And, and we can change that, uh, you know, if we, if we really, really want to, um, not easily, yeah. but we can. Yeah. And, um, you know, this point's made like million, many times over, but it's like, you need to be, it's one thing to hear like one study and be like, okay, well that's interesting. But like to have a book that's long form argu argument that brings up so many different examples that paints a, a new picture for you, you really start to see how consciousness is really like a dream because I mean, with 95% internal generated imagery, the difference between you, this experience you're having, this rich visual experience that you're having right now, and you dreaming is 5% retinal data. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, the, the same parts of the brains are, are lighting up during the dream state, uh, which means that they're, it, you're seeing, we're seeing the same way we are uh, when our eyes are open. Like as yeah. far as what the information the brain is processing, there's no distinction between it. Uh, which then what is fucking reality <laughs> and how rich is a dream a, ri a dream is rich with men you know mental imagery and and sounds and sights and smells like all of that like it's very rich and um and so i mean if dreams teach you anything it's that the brain is completely capable of creating an entire world on its own it doesn't need the senses i mean so you know like what many doctors have made the case for is that you know like your brain is really there to the senses are really there to ground your sense of reality or to ground your experience in some semblance of reality. So like they're, they're there to anchor you from floating away from complete dream territory, because that's basically where you live. And so, you know, and, and most people will be like, well, that sounds 95. That sounds a little bit, I don't know. But then once they experience the malleability of the internal experience component of a transcendent or psychedelic experience, that's when, when, 
when a year passes in three seconds, like it did for you, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. during the Ibiza trip, yeah. like so much happened. You're like, okay, now I understand how much I am creating this moment. Yeah. And how real that uh, and detailed that moment was, which wasn't real. I mean, it wasn't a thing that actually happened. It was a story my mind was coming up with that it made a movie for and played out with the utmost detail uh, and, and, and scenarios and everything. And uh, uh-huh. it, it's, we are constantly manufacturing our reality like story and uh and all the i'm glad you brought the the illusion stuff because i think that's that is really fundamental uh for people to just grasp that when it pertains to understanding how reality is constructed and how our brain actually processes information through our senses and how much of that information it actually takes into account how much of that actually affects the story where you know 95 percent of that as you're saying is happening in the brain and five percent of that is coming through uh, the actual, um, is that 5% just through the visual sense or is that through all senses or is it? It's 5% retinal data. So that's just vision. But, uh, when it comes to all the other senses, yeah, I mean, you know, basically it's 90% top down predictions and 10, uh, 10% bottom up sensory information. And that is what creates. So if this, at this moment, if you wanted to show the Bayesian inference, uh, photo, it's a great one. I pulled this off of, uh, neuroscientist Anil Seth's Royal institution talk. And he talks about this. So as you can see in this photo, uh, you have your sense data is in the red. And so, you know, that's just a little bit, your perception is somewhere in the middle, but your expectations, your prior beliefs, like they, these, between the two, you create something yourself. So you're not seeing reality. You're not seeing your predictions, you're seeing something in the middle of that. And it's not completely 50, 50 though. It's 90, 10. So 90% top down Mm. predictions and prior beliefs and about 10% sensory information coming up. Um, so that's just gives credence to the whole malleability of the internal experience idea. So thought really does have so much to do with our reality. And so the idea being, if you can change your thoughts, you can change everything. You can change your narratives. You can change your limiting beliefs. You can change I mean, what is a human? A human is infinite potential rendered into physical form. That's what a human is. We don't know what a human is. Every four years, we find out during the Olympics what people are capable of. We don't know. We're always surprised. Yeah, we are capable of so much more. Um, Well, let's do this then. Let's let's dive really quick into, we can either go into the, the selves diagram if you think that's going to okay. be a good way to take us home or uh, if there's uh, it's really kind of whatever you you think is is mo- most crucial for the audience to know as it pertains to to consciousness, the things you've you've discovered and, and why they should definitely check out uh, check out your book um, consciousness in a nutshell um, when it comes out. And once again, make sure you go to jnelson.com and you can just sign up for the email list so that you can be notified when the when the book uh, is um, is published and out. Um, but it should be in the next couple months. Um, but, uh, but yeah, whatever you think the audience needs to know that is, is most important, uh, uh, before we, before we wind this down, it's been an awesome conversation, man. Honestly, like I said, I could talk, I could talk with you about this for forever and there's so much to discuss. I mean, so yeah. much, so much therein, but I guess that's why you gotta, you gotta check out the book, but, uh, whatever you that's think right. is, is most important. Um, uh, or what you, you want to leave, uh, leave the audience with, uh, and, and have them pondering, uh, in the meantime, or perhaps change a particular view on something. 
Um, I think maybe, you know, we could do the simple selves and then, uh, that kind of ties in with a little bit of depression and what that is. And we've already broached the subject enough. I think that it might kind of bring it all together. Perfect. Let's do it. Um, simple self or self, okay. self simple. Yeah. So I'm gonna go ahead and pull that up real quick. So, um, when you go into, the study of consciousness, obviously you have to start drawing lines in the sand. And the first one you make is that there is a conscious self and an unconscious self, obviously, mm. you know? Um, so if you're trying to construct um, a way to conceptualize the brain, you have to, I mean, all the psychoanalysts agree that the brain is and the psyche is best construed by multiple sub personalities. So um, you have a conscious self and an unconscious self, right? That's the easiest thing. Now, uh, from Nobel laureate, Daniel Kahneman. Are you still good, by the way? No, I'm good, man. Okay. Uh, from Nobel laureate, Daniel Kahneman, um, we are introduced to the idea of a remembering self. Um, and so he's got a great TED Talk where he outlines the differences between the experiencing self and the remembering self. And so if you could just imagine that... All right, here's a good way to shortcut this. You're going... And this is borrowed from his TED Talk. Um, imagine that you're going to go on a vacation... And um, you can go anywhere in the world you want. But at the end of the vacation, I'm going to take your phone. I'm going to take all your photos. I'm going to destroy all of them. Now, does that change where you would want to go? Hmm. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So certain things you wouldn't want of... photos for. <laughs> well, right. Certain things you wouldn't yeah. want documented, depending on where you yeah. went, uh, other places you would. So what that gets at is like their idea that there is an experiencing self that lives in the now and knows the present and lives in a tiny span. That's like three seconds on either side. And that's its world. That's what it knows. It doesn't have access to memories. It, it's just completely sunk in the, in the deep now. So that's the experiencing self in a nutshell. Now the remembering self is, is the self that's talking to you right now because I'm using stories and language and concepts that I've already thought about and et cetera. So, um, you know, like if I'm telling you a story, that's obviously a product of the remembering self. So the remembering self is is able to choose and make decisions and and control consciousness to a certain extent because it's 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 wanting to drive future actions and future behavior in a way that makes sense. The only reason we remember things is so that it will ultimately drive future behavior, help us to find food or avoid you know, some sort of fearful situation or some sort of danger, like we're trying to protect ourselves. That's the only reason that's the only evolution, evolutionary reason we have memories is to um, change the way that we act in the future. So the whole vacation idea just gets at the, you know, point that, you know, you there's a difference between your experiencing self and your remembering self, because apparently if you if it was just your experiencing self calling the shots, you might go to Amsterdam. But if it was your remembering self calling the shots, you might go to Costa Rica. Cause you want to show people all these photos and tell people these stories of getting to sit with this try or something. Right. Yeah. So, um, now that's, that, that's, that here's the thing when it comes to multiple sub personalities, everybody agrees that there are some, they just don't agree on what to call it or how many there are. And so, you know, Freud chopped it three ways, the id, the ego, and the superego. Jung chopped it four ways, dividing the self up into four ways. Um, and then the neuroscientist, Neil Seth, he dropped it five ways. I think the best way to do it is to chop it eight ways. But for the purposes of this, I'm just going to do the simple diagram, which is four ways. So you have the conscious self, which is the circle that sits on top. 
you have the unconscious self, which is the circle that sits on bottom. And then to, let's say, the left or the, the east, I'm sorry, the west, that would be your, uh, your past-oriented self, a.k.a. your remembering self. And then on the other side, it would be your future self. So your future-oriented self, always focused on what's going to happen, where we're going, what's possible, what are, you know, predicting your actions into the future. Does this all make sense? So what, what, say the four again really quick, just so everybody knows. So you got your conscious self, your unconscious self, your future-oriented self, and your past-oriented self. Perfect. That's so simple. Yep. That's, your, that's your cardinal directions for the mind, northeast, southwest. So just understanding that helps you understand that you have different parts of you that want different things. You know, your conscious self wants a certain way of life. Your unconscious self doesn't want to, th- you know, it, it has a certain things that it wants the future oriented self has a certain you know idea of what it wants and the remembering self aka the past oriented self has a certain idea of what it wants and so you're caught in the middle of all this and so it you know in the book we go into eight divisions which helps you talk about altered states with surgical like precision when you when you when you get it down to eight um but the cool thing about this is if you understand what the brain is for And the brain is ultimately for orchestrating complex and adaptable movements through space. Dr. Daniel Wolpert has a lovely TED talk where he explains, you know, like what brains are for. And um, anyway, you know, like his argument is, you know, like there's very little that you can do apart from, you know, secreting, like sweating and stuff like that, that doesn't involve movement. Everything we do, writing, talking, speaking, like even thinking, I'm moving my eyes around movement is tied into everything we do right so the future oriented self if you think about it you know the the brain is there to orchestrate movements so the future oriented self is is a division of the subconscious that's always focused on the future and what might happen so the way i try to explain this is if you can picture an app on your phone we could call it the future self app and so just imagine that it's monitoring everything you're saying, everything you're doing. So just imagine it's Facebook or the government. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's actually happening? <laughs> Hypothetically. Uh, imagine you live in reality and uh, this yeah. is actually happening. Yeah. So yeah. imagine there's this app that exists. <laughs> imagine there's these overlords, these tech giants and, and uh, government, you know, tyrannical rulers who, uh, who are spying on everything you do. And imagine that. It's sad, but it's true, man. It is. So true. So, if you could imagine that there is a future self app that's monitoring everything you say and everything you're thinking about and like what you're doing and it's and it's analyzing your your movements in the present and and predicting what you're going to do in the future, that's what I would call your future oriented self or your future self. So, it's the division of the subconscious that's always focused on the future and what might happen. So, if you think about what depression is, what is what is depression? I mean, a state of, uh, I mean, unhappiness of, uh, of, of misery, lack of content. I mean, I guess it could be, uh, uh it could be described, uh, in, in many different ways, but I mean, ultimately I'd say unhappiness if I were just to generalize it, you know, in uh, yeah. in the most broad of terms. Yeah. It's a, it's a feeling that your body's sending you. Yeah. And so I think this will probably track with you and, you know, I do a, a, a much a much more careful way of getting to this conclusion in the YouTube video, the universal reason why people get depressed. But at the end of it, if you really take the idea of the future self seriously, uh, what that, what that predicts is that 
your brain is very good at analyzing movements and projecting those into the future. So why wouldn't it be able to figure out what you're up to in the present and then figure out what you're going to do and then say, I don't like that direction and tell you through a feeling Mm. that you're on the wrong path. Mm. That's depression. It is your Mm. body's way of telling you, is sending you a message. You are going in the wrong way. You're, You're basically, if you're walking in the wrong way, you're walking towards death when you should be walking towards evolution and life. And because you haven't prioritized and structured your life in a way that is playing a game, a long game, you're playing a short game of maybe it's survival. Maybe you're eating too much. Maybe you're not getting enough sunlight. Maybe you're, you're just so shrunk that you're just not living your best self. Well, that your brain is capable of, of analyzing what you're doing and then projecting that in the future, which is like, this only is spiraling downwards. I'm not going to participate by giving you any feel good neurotransmitters anymore. So this is what's called the silent treatment. I'm going to pull back the echo of experience from you. You're no longer going to have any feel good chemicals until you figure out that you're going in the wrong direction. And once you do, then depression will go away. Damn. That's a, I like that. I like that take. Um, let me let me just you know re- yeah. regurgitate it uh, and Please. make sure that I got it, and uh, hopefully it also makes it more clear for the audience that um, you have these four different you know modes of I guess you'd say uh, percept- perception, consciousness, unconsciousness, past, and future, uh, memory, if you will, and then future, um, and that the uh, all of them are are ultimately you know communicating, but the future you, in, in the case you're talking about the app. The future projection is is based upon your past experience and also the present, the present mm-hmm. moment, and it knows exactly like it's it's a very logical. It's like a, a, a computer a calculation and a calculation mm-hmm. that's taking in all this information of what it knows about what you're doing right now, about what you know about what you're doing uh, at your core. You may be silencing this because of your ego or because you're saying other other experiences or things. Um, the, you know, the same way we put the blinders on all the time and ignore the the, the transmitters and the, the ultimate neurological communication that needs to be taking place to to get to the core of these things. Um, but it knows at a at a you know a subconscious level uh, that this extrapolating out your current trajectory and is not good. And therefore, it's like uh, it's crunched the numbers and it's like based on what you're doing now and, and what we know from the past, what we can gather from all of these experiences from the conscious, subconscious, past and, and, uh, and those three in particular, we can project out in the future what's going to happen and it doesn't look good. And so <laughs> fuck you, <Yeah. laughs> correct it because, you know, we're, we're here to experience. We're here to live life for the fullest to, you know, uh, we have purpose here and we're here to spread love and, and compassion and empathy and, you know, fulfill whatever the the end game is that we came here to do and if we're not on that path then the body you know the mind the consciousness is not going to reward us it's going to be depressed because you're you're not going where you're supposed to be going it's crunched the numbers your trajectory is shit and you're not on course and therefore it's like you're not going to get rewarded until you you get back on the path uh, and then all things are going to be back in like harmony and uh mm-hmm. and 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 you know the depression will go away is that right Essentially, that's exactly right. And I mean, it, it tracks and I can back it up and with another study in just a second. But um, and it tracks with your experience of uh, of working out and that sort of thing. I mean, like anybody's experience of working out. If you do the things that your body wants you to do. I mean, these are evolutionary evolved things that your body wants. It wants you to be, you know, 
a, it wants homeostasis. It wants you to be warm. It wants you to uh, go outside and get sunlight. It wants you to get proper sleep. It wants proper nutrition. It wants you to not feed it shit. And I, I've, I've eaten so much horrible food in my life. Mm-hmm. That's why I say that like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, your body doesn't want you to lie. It doesn't want you. It wants you to like be around other people. And, you know, we regulate each other's nervous systems. Um, you know, it wants all these things. And so when you give it what it wants, when you go skydiving, when you go traveling, when you go work out, when you go do something and have a novel experience, you get rewards. There's built in rewards. And when you do things that you know you shouldn't do, there's punishments. And people don't like to hear that's what depression is because they don't want to agree that, you know, they could be responsible for this thing. Mm. They want to say, oh, it's just a chemical imbalance. Yeah, well, maybe Mm. it's a chemical imbalance, but where's that imbalance coming from? Maybe it's from your actions. Maybe it's from your thoughts and maybe it's from rumination. So depression is underpinned. Um, Dr. Anil Seth has this... uh, you know, he describes depression in three words. Depression is repetitive, ruminative thinking. And what is rumination? Rumination is replaying something in your mind over and over, over and over. Like what we talked about. I think we talked about that earlier, didn't mm-hmm, we? Mm-hmm. Rumination. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. And depression is underpinned by hyperactive default network. Again, we get back to this ego. And so when you get this thing out of the way, that's when the downloads happen, which is you need to go work out. You need more sunlight. You're not, your job is a dead end job and it's not helping you and it's not helping the world. And you are lying to yourself. It's an enacted lie. It's an embodied lie that you are, that you are a vegan and you're working at a steakhouse. That's my story. I was a vegan working at a steakhouse and my body said, what the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah. You're you're a living lie. This relationship is toxic and you're, you're staying in it. Like, uh, you know, same type of thing. Like it's, it, we, our body knows, like it knows when things aren't good for us. And yet we've convinced ourselves, you know, of the, the cheating spouse or the, you know, the, the verbally abusive person or whatever, like, and your body's like, get the fuck away from them. And you're like, no, but you know, I, 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 it's this lack of, you know, yeah, it's the same convincing of something that you're, you're telling yourself or your, your mind, your subconscious knows the fiber of your being, this is not good for you. And what you're doing, what you're taking in is is toxic, is damaging. And so why would I reward you for this when you know it's not good and you've made up a lie about why you need to keep doing it? Like, so until you fucking wake up from that, like, yeah, enjoy the depression. Oh, back. Yeah, enjoy, yeah, enjoy the depression. <laughs> enjoy the silent treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, dude. So, um, yeah, that was going to prompt something. What... Okay. I'd, be, I'd be curious just really quick just to touch it on uh, what are the what are the other four you says that's the four basics what are the other four you don't need to go in detail on them but like you said it's really an eight part um, um yeah so there is a you have a persona for example you have multiple personas you have a persona of how you think you should be around your parents how you should be at your job you have a persona i have like a you know, there's like a husband persona. So you have all these masks that you wear in different settings. I have a persona that, um, like a YouTube persona, it's a little more put together than my probably persona I have with my wife, which is more like, mm-hmm. this is me, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And so like, you know, we each see different sides of each other. So persona is one, um, the ego, I like to call that the narrative self. Um, because ego is used in a, like he's got a big ego that's like a colloquial term that doesn't track with the psychological meaning of ego. Um, but with the way we've been using it is fine. 
Um, and then, you know, there is when everything gets knocked out, when you descend into that possibility space, when the flow state happens, when whatever, you know, you reach the peak non-ordinary state experience, which is transcendence, um, there's only one thing left and that's the awareness. Uh, and so the awareness is, it sits on the edge between the experiencing self and the bodily self. So, you know, like, uh, yeah, it, it's like, it's, it's right there, but you know, like, let's say for example, during a high dose psychedelic trip, you're not going to have a remembering self anymore. And you're not going to have a future self anymore. You're not going to have a persona anymore. You're going to have your unconscious self for sure. And you may be the aware, the, the true you, the real I has descended, has when you descend into the possibility space, the narrative self melts away. So many other things as well. So yeah, like your ability to extract yourself in the present moment is gone. You can't think about the past. You might not remember you've taken something. You might not be able to think about tomorrow. You're just stuck in the now. And that's all you have the attention for. And so that's completely just the awareness. Um, and so, but the idea is that there's a bodily self as well. And so this bodily self has certain needs and wants that it tries to communicate to you. But then you have this narrative self that spins a, another story that says, well, this person's good for me, or, you know, this thing is good for me, or, you know, I read on Dr. or I saw on Dr. Oz that I should, you know. <laughs> so we have this idea that is, that is in conflict with what the body is saying. And so it just, I think this helps people understand that, you know, with every decision, we're never in a hundred percent agreement. Rarely. Usually it's like, well, I kind of want to get out of bed, but I kind of want to not get out of bed and just stay here forever <laughs> it's like i kind of want to go to this thing tonight but i don't and then i flip a coin because i don't know how to do anything else yeah yeah <laughs> so it, it helps people understand like there's many different sides of you and you're not just one thing you're not just your narrative self you're not just your thoughts and when you start to treat yourself as this multiplicity you there's more happiness because you know, like meditation and yoga, these things are all about union and unionizing the self and getting yourself into one spot in one time and marrying yourself to this present moment. But when you let the ego come in and, and pull you out with mental like thoughts and, and, and worrying about tomorrow and, you know, ruminating about the past, then that's where this depression and anxiety comes from is because you've lost your loyalty to the present moment. Mm. So yeah, incredibly true, man. Uh, wow, man, uh, we, we've we've passed the uh, the three hour mark. Um, Can I do one slam dunk thing? Fucking yeah, take it home, bro. All right, this would be the, this would be the thing that really kicked me off in this whole future self thing. So, in the whole idea behind depression, there is this study called the Iowa Gambling Task. Have you heard of that one? Mm -mm. Okay. So it's, it's a pretty simple thing to explain, but basically there's a subject and there's an experimenter and the experimenter sets out four decks of cards. This is generally actually played on a computer, but whatever. So they set out four decks of cards and all they tell the subject is choose from one of these four decks and you just want to try to win as much money as possible. So the people start choosing these decks at random. They choose a card and then they notice the wallet, you know, money go, there's, there's, there's money in there. And then, uh, you know, they choose from this deck, money goes away. They choose from this deck, but it's completely like they have no idea which decks are good or which, which like our suits good are no, our sevens bad or jokers good. They have no idea of any of this stuff. Hmm. All they're just told is to pick, pick cards and, and, and win as much money as possible. So at, at certain intervals, the experimental will stop and be like, 
Now, if you could choose from any one of these decks, A, B, C, D, which would you choose? And um, and so people, you know, sometimes they'll give an answer. Sometimes like, I don't know. But the important point is they've also been hooked up to a galvanic skin response, which measures uh, sweat glands, um, which measures it's kind of like a lie detector test. And so so they're able to track how your body is reacting when you choose from certain decks. And so what happens is it usually takes about 20 to 30 pulls from any of the decks. So 20 or 30 tries for people to consciously work out, oh, deck A is the best deck to choose from, or deck B is the, is the bad deck. Don't ever choose from that one. Takes them 20 to 30 tries. Now, here's the thing. Within 10 tries, the body starts sweating when you go for the wrong deck. When you start choosing the wrong deck, it starts sending you a message. This is the wrong deck. Don't choose this deck. I'm sweating so you'll know that this is not a good deck to choose from. So what that means is around 10 cards in, the subconscious, a.k.a. the bodily self or whatever you want to call it, has figured out which deck is the good deck. And then it takes the conscious self 10 or 20 more cards to figure out which deck is the right deck. And we think as conscious agents, oh, I'm just so smart and so intelligent and running all the and calling all the shots and all that stuff. No, 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 no. Your physiology always plays a part in your decision making, even when you think it's all top down logic, even when you think, oh, I came up with it. It's obviously deck A. You didn't. Your body told you and it knew way before you did. And it's just one of those studies that you know, paints another picture of the subconscious is smarter than you are. It has way more access to information than you are. And the body is very, very intelligent. And if we are going to continuously ignore what the body wants and what the subconscious is saying, then we are going to end up depressed and anxious because we're going against our own instincts. I'm glad you said instincts at the end, because all I was thinking about with that was, uh, the power of, uh, of intuition, uh, of our higher self. Like, uh, you know, we can call it the subconscious, um, whatever it is, we're, we're connected, uh, we're connected to all things. And, and I think we know that, uh, at, at a level that we don't necessarily have access to, um, in the, in our waking life, but can be accessed through these non-ordinary states of consciousness, if you will, uh, that can be experienced and felt and that we, our intuition, uh, is never wrong. Uh, and in my opinion, what I tell people anyway, like it's, it's never wrong. It's never led you astray. It may have told you things that scared you or that you didn't want to do, but it was never wrong. And you ignored them at your own peril. And then you had to learn a lesson the hard way. And then you integrated that lesson. And then when that same opportunity came up, whether it's years, months, decades down the road to, to have that same growth experience, you then made the right choice but you didn't listen to your gut, like our gut, our intuition, that, that subconscious that knows that has access to this information is always telling us stuff. And we just have to find that way, that balance of silencing the ego, silencing that logical part of the brain, uh, that, you know, thinks it has, like you were saying, all the answers and realize that they we're connected to other, other information that is happening on levels that, you know, just like with the, uh, the light spectrum, you know, we just, whatever it is, we po- see 0.00034% of like all light or something that, that is in existence. Some absolutely tiny little number. All that other stuff is real though. It's happening. Like mm-hmm. there, there are parts of our perception that 
infinite us, that, that subconsciousness, that the ultimate consciousness, if you will, uh, that makes up, you know, the, the soul or the spirit or whatever you want to like call it, that, that energy that is in us, that is, that is eternal. Once created, doesn't go away. That is, you know, vibration, sound, frequency, resonance that is there has access to information that we in our conscious mind, the logical mind that we think like is so smart doesn't, but it sends us that information. It does. It, it, it is there if we're tuned in. And I think that's, uh, it seems like at least, you know, in my interpretation of that, which once again, I guess would come down to my reality, right? My, my reinforcing mm-hmm. of what, uh, what I believe uh, to be real and possible. But it seems like that is, you know, the, the higher self that, uh, that, you know, subconscious intuition, whatever we want to call it, that is picked up on information that is not necessarily seen or is paying just far more attention than our, you know, dumb logical brain that thinks it has it all, you know, it's, it's getting all the pieces. Um, and it solved that puzzle a long time ago. And then it sent a signal to the body of like, Hey, like you start heating up, like, don't do that. That's the bad one. And like, Mm -hmm. and then it's like, I know something you don't, I'm trying to tell you, Yeah, please listen. No, I mean, we try. And yeah, I mean, that was, that was like, when I worked with the monk, he said something I'll never forget, which is like, there's the path of pain. Like in this life, there's two choices. There's the path of pain and there's the path of listening. You can take either road you want, but I mean, you know what the path of pain feels like because you've been depressed for 15 years and you've told me this. Now I'm telling you there's a new way and it's through meditation and that sort of thing. If you can start listening to your highest self and this subconscious that you're starting to develop a relationship with, like if you can listen to that more often, listen to your intuition, listen to your gut, listen to this, listen to your instincts then you're going to have way more happiness in your life. But when we deny our own instinct for evolution, and I mean cognitive evolution, emotional evolution, like just being better, being on the right path, that's we have an instinct for evolution, I believe. And when we, 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 when we betray that instinct, we call that depression. And that's what it, it feels like. It's a resonance of this is wrong. You're in the wrong direction. Well, I got to say, uh, Jay, I cannot wait to, uh, <laughs> to check out the uh, the book Consciousness in a Nutshell. I'll be throwing up uh, a picture of the cover. I love the cover of the book, by the way. Um, super, super dope. I hope it, uh, it ends up being the one that you go with. Um, and I hope that the, the audience, uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I know we, we, we popped around a lot, but that's, that, that's to <laughs> yeah. be expected. There's, there's a lot, a lot to say, um, and catching up and whatnot. So yeah. hope you all enjoyed the conversation, but definitely go to jnelson.com, um, subscribe to the email so you can be notified when the book does come out, check out the, uh, the, the video he was talking about on his page too, about depression, um, this should all be very in- empowering for people. And that's, that is really the point of Nate night talks. Uh, as far as the, the podcast goes is everything ultimately has to do with, with consciousness and the, the story and the narrative and the reality that we create for ourselves and understanding mm-hmm. that and becoming in tune with that so that we can ultimately create a life that, and a purpose, uh, life that, you know, we, we want and that, uh, and that we should have, and then do the same for others. And so, uh, what he was discussing about, uh, about depression, um, I don't know if we talked about it in this conversation, maybe it was when we were teasing it yesterday, but just the idea of how very, very, very few people, I can't remember what the percentages don't quote me on it, whether or not it's 5% or 
10% or whatever of people actually have the biochemical deficiencies needed for most of these SSRIs, these antipsychotics, these things like that. They're just prescribed freely because of big pharma where most people don't need them. They end up causing more damage. And that's why you see, oh, risk of suicide, risk of all these other things, because it's all it's doing is amplifying the 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 unhappiness and the, the poor decision making um, that we're, we're doing, the not being in alignment with what we came here to do and what our body and mind and soul knows that we should be doing. And, uh, and those things can be revealed to you through non-ordinary states of consciousness very quickly, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's meditation, or, you know, hypertrophic breathing, whatever, whatever it may be, like there is ways to do it. And you just have to get past the fact that this isn't, this is science. This isn't new age, woo woo, hippie nonsense. This is, this has been done for tens of thousands of years. It's been passed down for tens of thousands of years deliberately. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about an embarrassment of proof, an abundance of proof. It's, it's in our history and it's there. And we've only recently lost touch with this, you know, in the Western world. Um, you know, we've, we've departed from spirit. We've departed from, from consciousness and from the true exploration and, and interconnectivity of all things. And look at where society is. Look at how fucking miserable and unhappy and worrying we are and fearful we are. All of this stuff is a symptom of, of this departure from, from self and, and being able to unplug, disconnect from the fucking matrix that we're, we're plugged into and, uh, and, and, you know, realize what's going on and let those parts of our brain communicate and psychedelics and you know, psilocybin in particular has been proven to cause, cause neurogenesis to make parts of the brains communicate that weren't previously communicating. Same with LSD. Like it opens the floodgates of communication. And so that your ego gets put aside and finally messages that have been dying to reach you are able to reach you. Your ego is crushed. All the, the lies and the story you've told yourself about who you are, what's real, what's possible. Everything is dissolved and suddenly information can be revealed to you. And that information is enough usually to kick you out of depression and put you in a, in a state of, of purpose and alignment again. And, uh, and we must not vilify these things uh, and, and really just look at the facts, the science, the, the studies that have been done. It's, uh, it's, it's all lies. The, the war on drugs, the, the embargo on this stuff, the scheduling one, it's not based in science. It's not based in any of the actual research. Like it is in complete contrast and denial to the facts. And, uh, and this is, you know, but yet big pharma, they'll prescribe dangerous, untested things to you freely and to your children's developing minds. Mm. They'll, they'll allow you to, to inflect them, but yet psychedelics as a ceremony, rite of passage, healing, communing with God and spirit, these things that have been used for thousands of years and all, all components to it are known, uh, that you want to talk about a track record, uh, what's the track record so far, you know, on, on Adderall and, and children or Ritalin, these things, we've already mm. seen the effects of them in short term and now long term studies, but we have thousands, tens of thousands of years of proof with these psychedelic compounds. That there is no danger. I mean, obviously anything can be abused. You can kill yourself drinking water. So let's just put that to rest. I mean, like <laughs> anything, anything can be bad if used irresponsibly. Um, but, but if used appropriately, no. Right. The only yeah. difference between a tool and a weapon is the operator. Damn right. Jay, man, uh, really, really appreciate uh, you, you coming on for the, the second official episode of the, the Nate Night Talks podcast. Um, really great to catch up with you. Really, really yeah, stoked for you and proud of you for what you've, you've accomplished and, and how much work you've, you've put into this. 
and um and we will i think we'll do we'll definitely need to do a second part to this because there's there's so much more that we haven't talked about um and so much more to dive into um as it pertains not just to the you know consciousness but you know the near-death experiences and and how those things have changed people because there's a lot to that as well um and i'm familiar with many stories and many people who've had them um and certain things that are unlocked i think in your in your consciousness and your subconsciousness when that happens um and uh and you know more on on psychedelics there's just there's so much so much more to dive into uh it's such a uh, a massive, massive subject. Um, and it's, it's worthy of our exploration and, and discussion and, uh, and constant research. And so I'm grateful for, for you, you doing it and, uh, really hope everybody will check out the book once again, uh, consciousness in a nutshell by Jay Nelson. Yep. And, uh, and, uh, you co you co-wrote it with your, your wife. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and her name, it says Jay Nelson. And who's the other, uh, Lindy Randall. That's my wife, Lindy yeah. Randall. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely check that out. And once again, go to jnelson.com, check out some of the depression videos and, uh, and the research and everything that he has on there. And on the YouTube uh, video for this, I will um, put up uh, some of the graphs and charts and illusions and things that uh, were referenced during this conversation. So you can actually see what we were talking about. And um, any anything, uh, any final parting words, my friend? Uh, I guess I just say that... Um you know, light pollution, light pollution happens, you know, like in a city, you can't, you know, like all the, there's so much light, you can't see any of the stars, right? So all this light that's around you, this, you know, the city's turning on, like the city just being on and just functioning is blocking out your ability to see the cosmos that we're connected to and a part of. And so if there's a blackout, the entire city skyline has changed, isn't it? Like you're able to now see, you're able to go up in your roof and see there's so many stars you didn't even know were there because now all this light pollution is no longer blocking it. That's the same thing when it comes to the ego. So I call it ego pollution. Ego pollution is blocking our ability to perceive reality as it truly is and to truly see how connected we are to everything and to everyone. And so, you know, I mean, I don't care how you do it, but psychedelics have a way of obliterating like causing full-blown citywide blackouts in your brain and in a good way it can show you some things but you know these other other methods like you know flow states and meditation and all that and just other altered states of consciousness are able to make the lights flicker a little bit and show you a little bit so it depends on how you want to do it but the idea is if we can like let's get this ego pollution out of the way so we can live a better life that is a great way to end it. Yeah. Appreciate it. Hey, this you, is fun, man. Yeah. No. Yeah. Pleasure is mine, dude. We'll, we'll do it again once the book actually, uh, I think when it releases, we'll, we'll do a follow up and we'll, uh, we'll dive in and, yeah. and fill in some gaps. Um, but, uh, but other than that, man, appreciate you. Thank you again. Once again, jnelson.com. Go there, check it out. Everything you'll need will be there, including links to the, uh, the short film method that we were talking about in the beginning, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and all sorts of fun things therein. And so, uh, Jay, thank you. And, uh, we'll, we'll do this again in a couple months. And thank you everybody for tuning in. Thank and you. On that note, I'm Nate. It's late. Let's walk. Oh, Hey, you made it all the way to the end. Me too. I hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, please make sure that you like, subscribe, comment, share with all of your friends across every social media platform. 
Uh, and then if you have time, go to natenighttalks.com and, uh, and join the NNT community and research database if, if you have time and, and the resources and, and want to support uh, what, I'm, what I'm doing here.